Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or Pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, Welcome to the Dead Zone. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there. I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room. Hello. Hello. How are you? I have regrets. <laughs> Well, yes, that's, uh, let's see, 20, 21, yeah, about, yeah, that's on par. <laughs> Seems like a lot of decisions and a lot of lives have really accumulated to the uh, regrets point. And here, we're, here we are. Uh, here we are. Uh, mine actually uh, is specifically in regards to this movie. Uh, I regret that uh, we didn't watch this in the theater. Yeah, yeah, this was definitely one of those movies that I I have, uh, well, like you said, I have regrets about. I have uh, envy for those that saw this in theaters. It's it, This was one of those that I just completely shielded myself from. I literally hadn't even seen the trailer until we sat down to watch the movie. Same, same. So, yeah, we just, I don't even know if we can say that, it, like, just wasn't even on our radar we just i don't know we were busy i guess because we we weren't we didn't not want to see this movie it just seemed like it just kind of i don't know i yeah i never happened somehow it just kind of kept getting pushed off and pushed off we specifically never watched a trailer for it because we didn't want any kind of spoilers going in Mm mm-hmm Wow. Uh, (laughs) yeah and And to say that we went into this completely raw I mean, we knew nothing except for this is basically about a cult. Yeah, that's about it. And then many, many people in my life have kept saying, so you're telling me you haven't seen the scene? (laughs) The scene. And I kept saying, I haven't seen the movie. So no, I haven't seen the scene. And now to those people that said that, shame on you. You know what? Shame on you for not warning me. I I think it's a little rude. I I think I need to reevaluate our friendships. Uh, I'm just kidding. It was. It, I feel like I would have been mad if that scene was spoiled for me. But at the same time, what a fucking scene! Oh, what man. a fucking movie! I would have been furious if I knew about it going in. It had such. You know what? This is ridiculous. We have so much to talk about this movie. I don't. I don't think there's been another movie that has been so full of symbolism and Easter eggs and so much crap. I am exhausted after researching this one. I mean, I had a fantastic time. You know I live for this shit. But whoo, we need some fluff after this one. But I am so excited to talk about it. Yeah, this one is definitely a big one. It's it's literally our most requested since we started this podcast. Um, you know, kind of introducing ourselves out on social media. I was kind of reaching out to people and saying, what's your favorite scary movies? You know, I want to kind of gauge the audience see what people want to see us react to and watch and everything and by far this was the most requested and it was one of those I was like well yeah obviously that'll be something we we watch that'll definitely be on our list but it just kind of again kept getting pushed to the side so the moment we committed to this A24 this was this was the one that I was like well we're going to cover Midsummer. this one was on the list no matter what (laughs) I mean if you're doing A24 you kind of have to yeah yeah and I'm, I'm so glad we did 
Well, before we get into everything, just to recap, a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater and were told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what we want to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find us because, yeah, the theater moves around, it's never in the same place twice, and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And this week, we are in the final week of a month-long series simply called A24, where we celebrate the production company that's brought us some of the biggest independent horror films of the last decade, proving that sometimes unique and different is scary in the best way possible. Of course, now is the time when we do a spoiler warning, but I do also want to take this moment to give a trigger warning for suicide and its graphic imagery. There's a lot happening with this movie, and of course, as always, we're going to talk about all of it here, complete with all the spoils and theories, but if you can't stomach this one, that's more than understandable. We're here to hopefully break down the movie in a way that's still enjoyable. For those that do want to watch the movie first, we were able to stream it on Prime Video, so go ahead and pause here, go check it out. And then come back here because we're going to jump into things because this is just, it, like Whitney said, there's a lot to talk about in this movie. And it's a doozy. It, it is a doozy. This movie ended up being a whole lot of things that I didn't expect it to be. Yeah. Uh, number one, had no idea it was as funny as it is. Yeah, that was completely caught me off guard. Uh, absolutely. Uh, number two, Really had no idea it was as gory as it was. Yeah, me either. Uh, and when I tell you it's gory, it is fucking gory. I'm just going to just put it out there right now. This is extreme. Yeah. So if that is a problem for you, this is not your film. Yeah, this is definitely <laughs> going to be one of those that falls into some pretty graphic body horror. So if that's not your shtick when it comes to horror I would definitely probably stray away from this one because it it gets heavy fast and there's no warnings at all in the movie for for the scenes to happen so we are your warnings right here right now <laughs> things get crazy and gory in this movie so if uh if you're faint of heart and can't do it that is more than okay we're, we're gonna tell you about everything here but in a less less maybe icky way <laughs> hopefully I mean it's it's still not gonna be pretty but yeah uh, it's not going to be so in your face, <laughs> pun not intended. Yeah. Um, uh, also, I, I think we should say up front, you know, we're going to be talking about a lot of theories about what's going on. Please understand these theories are completely our own. I say that. I've, I've seen some of these things discussed online. I agree with some of these. Some theories I kind of ran with and took in my own direction. So we are not saying that the quote-unquote answers we're giving you or the explanations to certain scenes are 100% what that's supposed to mean. This is what we took from it, and, uh, you know, maybe that'll help you if you were kind of confused in certain areas or, or, or whatever. But if you have a theory uh, taken in another direction, I am all about that stuff. You know, let's start a discussion in the Dead Zone discussion room about what your theories are. I, I, um, I'm giddy with the possibility of uh, people seeing some stuff I didn't see, happens all the time, having information about stuff. Oh, 
I'm, I'm ready for all of it. Yeah, that's one of your favorite things to do is just literally sit there and discuss movie theories. You, you turn into this little kid. You're like, got to stop everything you're doing and sit there and chat. And I love it. So, yeah, discussions abound in the discussion room. It's, it's one of our favorite places to hang out when it comes to discussing these movies after we discuss them here. So definitely come hang out and let's talk about things because we're going to keep saying it. There's a lot to fucking talk about in this movie. <laughs> Well, let's get to the wiki. So Midsummer is a 2019 folk horror film and the second offering from hereditary writer and director Ari Aster. It stars Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, William Jackson Harper, Wilhelm Blumgren, and Will Poulter. The film was initially pitched to Aster as a straightforward slasher film set among Swedish cultists. Aster devised a screenplay using elements of the concept, but made a deteriorating relationship the central conflict after he himself experienced a difficult breakup. He described the result as, quote, a breakup movie dressed in the clothes of a folk horror film, end quote, which I think is the perfect way to describe this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just like Hereditary was a family drama about loss and the effect of grief upon a family dynamic dressed in the clothes of a psychological horror. So it's already becoming sort of a director's trait that Astor is fantastic at tricking us into watching these very complex human dramas disguised as horror yeah uh and i'm here for it oh yeah give give me more please thank you (laughs) uh i mean quite frankly a a lot of human drama can get way more horrifying than anything even the best slashers can dice up Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah because it's the it's the kind that can like sit in your head oh yeah and this movie definitely does that in fact you and i almost immediately discussed how this movie pretty much demands to be watched at least twice. Yeah. Because once you're done, you automatically feel like there is so much that you miss that you need to go back and uh, and and try and see if you can see like clues to to information that you get later on. Mm-hmm. It's this bizarre feeling of like knowing that you grasp some of it, but knowing that like the answers are still there and you didn't get everything you should have, you know? Yeah. So yeah, you feel like, oh no, I, I, I didn't quite get what I needed to. I got to go back and rewatch it. And so yeah, this is one of those that immediately I felt like I needed to turn around and rewatch because I, I felt like not unsatisfied, but I just felt incomplete, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like I just needed more. Yeah. And, and plus there's so much constantly going on you know even within the background Mm -hmm. and everything there's were several times on my first watch through that I was like oh I think that's something I really want to go back and watch this again because I feel like I'm missing these tiny little things and you know how I live for Mm -hmm. that little stuff yeah (laughs) and uh and it's true I there's tons of stuff in here Well, this film was greenlit on May 18, 2018, just four months after the release of Hereditary, and premiered on June 18, 2019, marking an unusually short production period for a wide-release theatrical film. A a year and a month. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. That is crazy fast. Especially with the production value of this movie. Yeah. Just the everything, every 
bit of detail in this movie is insanity to me and it feels like I have no I just I can't fathom being able to do all that in that short (laughs) amount of time my mind doesn't know how it happened well it did and he pulled it off well Midsummer had a pre-release screening at the Alamo Draft House Cinema in New York City on June 18th 2019 and was theatrically released in the United States on July 3rd 2019 So, much to the chagrin of Swedish horror fans, the film was not released during Midsummer in Sweden, but yet a few weeks afterwards. The film will go on to gross $27.5 million in the United States and Canada, and another $20.4 million in other territories, for a worldwide total of $47.9 million. The theatrical version that we will be talking about today is a whopping two hours and 27 minutes long, but that was cut down at the request of A24 from Astor's original cut of the film, which adds another 24 minutes for a grand total of two hours and 51 minutes. That version had its world premiere at the Film Society of Lincoln Center in New York City on August 20th, 2019 and was shown in theaters across the United States for a single weekend starting on August 29, 2019. The director's cut would go on to be released as an Apple TV exclusive in September of that year and is now available on DVD and Blu-ray. I I have to see it. Oh yeah, Uh, we will be discussing that because uh, apparently there's some important information Yes, uh, that we miss out by not seeing that extra 24 minutes. Yes, yeah. Uh, But uh, Danny and I think we've already come up with kind of a a little plan to maybe see if we can get our hands on it and maybe do a little bonus episode, talk about what we missed. Yeah, I feel like, uh, again, we can just keep talking about this movie and if there's 24 extra minutes to talk about, who am I to say that? It doesn't need to be talked about. <laughs> it absolutely needs to be talked about. Every moment of this film, I feel, could be just scrutinized and talked about ad nauseum. Yeah, yeah. Well, on review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, this film holds an approval rating of 83% based on 396 reviews with an average rating of 7.6 out of 10. The site's critics' consensus reads, quote, ambitious, impressively crafted, and above all unsettling. Midsummer further proves writer-director Ari Aster is a horror auteur to be reckoned with, end quote. Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film a grade of C plus on an A plus to F scale, while those at post-track gave it an average three out of five stars, with 50% saying they would definitely recommend it. John DeFore of The Hollywood Reporter described the film as the, quote, horror equivalent of a destination wedding and more unsettling than frightening, but still a trip worth taking, end quote. And Time Out's Joshua Rothkop awarded the film a five out of five star rating, writing, quote, a savage yet evolved slice of Swedish folk horror. Ari Aster's hallucinatory follow-up to Hereditary proves him a horror director, with no peer, end quote. But, of course, not everyone drank the film's special mushroom tea. Jordi Costa, writing for Spain's top news outlet, El Pace, said of the film, quote, Ari Aster is drunk on his own self-importance, oh. end quote. Wow. Yikes. 
In April 2020, A24 announced it would be auctioning off props from its films and television series, including the 10,000 silk flower May Queen dress worn by Florence Pugh, which was purchased by the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures for $65,000. Oh, that's not too bad. Yeah, pocket change. Yeah. Other items from the film that sold at auction were the bear headdress for 4760 the mallet, and if you've seen the film, you know Ooh. exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, that sold for $10,000, and various villager costumes that sold in the $4,500 range. All the proceeds from the Midsummer Collection raised over $100,000 for the FDNY Foundation. Wow. One other bit of random trivia before we get to the movie. Apparently, Ariana Grande is a huge fan of this film, calling it one of her favorite films of 2019. She tried and failed to buy that May Queen gown they auctioned off, but she did go ahead and throw herself a Midsummer-themed 27th birthday party. It's very random. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> but I also am very happy I have that information now. Well, I mean, who doesn't like a little Ariana Grande? And I would just like to say that my 30th birthday is coming up soon. And uh, a Midsummer-themed birthday sounds pretty cool. Oh, God, i got to start ordering flowers now. <laughs> Do you think they'll let you buy that dress off them? At least maybe rental. Yeah, for like maybe half the price. It's not that bad. You can't spill anything on it. Jeez, can you imagine that dry cleaning bill? <laughs> I just want to stand outside and let the birds come hang out with me. All the little hummingbirds come in. I think that's that's a priceless experience, really. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have a synopsis for us? I do. It's pretty short. It just goes on to say that a couple travel to Sweden to visit their friend's rural hometown for its fabled Midsummer Festival. But what begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a cult. It's a cult. It's a cult. All right. And that's just like scratching the surface of oh what the fuck God. happens here. So, so very shallow surface. <laughs> <laughs> so many more things happen. <laughs> well, here we go. We open on a beautiful hand-painted mural of our story. Like, the whole movie. Yep. This this painting tells you the entire story from beginning to end, laid out in five acts. But of course, out of context, we have no idea what we're looking at. So we'll come back around to this mural and what it shows after we've talked about the movie. That is, if we remember, we're we're going to be talking about a lot of other stuff <laughs> between here and then. We'll we'll try and remember to talk about it again. Well, the mural splits open and allows us to enter into our story. We see some lovely winter scenes of snow-covered forest as a woman sings to us in Swedish. At least that's what the closed captions say. She really just is making a bunch of vowel sounds like which seems like a pretty universal language, but perhaps I know more Swedish than I thought I did. <laughs> All this song does is lull me into a sense of security for no reason at all. Oh, yeah. I should have no security in this movie, but that's what it did. I was like, oh, that painting is so cute. And then we're like going into this whole wintry tree scene. And I was like, oh, this song's so lovely, so peaceful. Yeah, and this all leads to a pretty jolting cut Yeah, uh, where we switch from the angelic Swedish singing and snowy landscapes 
to an offensively loud telephone ringing and the snowtop roofs of some nondescript town. Uh, it's the middle of the night, and that phone keeps ringing until an answering machine picks it up. What year is this supposed to be? <laughs> Who still has an answering machine? <laughs> do they still even make answering machines? If they do, I want one. I Well, I need a phone first. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a landline yeah. Yeah, for it to work. Uh, well, these people have an answering machine. Apparently, this is the Ardor residence, and this is the home of our main character, Danny's parents. Danny is calling because she got an upsetting email from her sister, Terry, who is now not responding when Danny tries to call. As she's leaving the message on the only answering machine left in the world, we can see throughout her parents' home, uh, there's various photos of the family, ending on her mother and father sleeping in bed. Beside the bed, we can see a photo of a young girl with a crown of flowers draped over the frame. We'll come back to that later. Danny explains that she's worried, and if they could just give her a call back, that'd be great. We now see Danny in her apartment hang up the phone and look back over that email sent by her sister. All it says is, quote, I can't anymore. Everything's black. Mom and Dad are coming, too. Goodbye, end quote. Uh, which is hella concerning. Yeah. Not, not comforting at all i would be just as like anxious and nervous as oh Danny yes is. i'd be freaking out and, and the problem here is you know they don't live in the same state i think danny and her friends are in new york and her parents and sister are in like minneapolis or something i'm not sure if that's the right city but the point is she can't just run over there to check on everyone yeah so still worried she decides to call her boyfriend christian for some emotional support but don't count on this douchebag for too much. He just smoked some resin with his buddy Mark, and now they're getting some pizza. And through this conversation, we see Danny is really trying to hide that she's upset. Like, she's not comfortable at all showing her true emotions around Christian. Christian is already aware of what's going on with her sister and that email, and he does inquire about it but he doesn't offer any comfort and instead pretty much just scolds her for encouraging her sister's bipolar behavior almost as if it's Danny's fault for actually being worried and poor Danny so desperate not to push Christian away agrees with him actually apologizes for being upset and tells him you're right I just needed you to remind me I'm so lucky to have you I want to kick him in the groin. Gross. I literally out loud a couple of times was like, ew. Ugh. But just because like he, he would gaslight her into apologizing for things that she didn't have to. And I would get so angry about it. Oh, uh, yeah. We are quickly going to learn that Danny is a tad bit codependent while Christian is going to give us a textbook case of how to gaslight. I, I, it is going to become infuriating. Yeah. I mean, just from the jump, this relationship should have never happened. They are definitely not healthy for each other. Uh, and it's just going to be so infuriating. Uh, so Danny, of course, is played by actress Florence Pugh. Uh, she does have another creepy credit. She was in 2018's Malevolent. Uh, and she's in the upcoming Don't Worry Darling, directed by Olivia Wilde. I didn't know she was directing some horror now. I didn't either. That's oh, really interesting. I want to see it. Me too. 
Well, next we see Danny call a friend, frantically worried that she's dumping too much of her emotional shit on Christian, always burdening him with her family shit, and that she's just going to push him away. To which the friend says, good riddance. But Danny says, not if it was my fault and dealing with my shit has become a chore. To which the friend says, then he's not the right guy for you because it should never be a chore. The friend is giving some damn good advice here, but before Danny can weigh more of those options, she gets another call come in from an unknown number. Meanwhile, we see our douchebag boyfriend in the flesh. This is Christian with his friends, and they are sitting at a restaurant eating their pizza and talking about how much of a pain in the ass Danny is. His three friends seen here are Josh, a fellow anthropology student, their jackhole of a friend Mark, just when you thought there wasn't anyone douchier than Christian, and their friend Pele, who is a foreign student from Sweden. Also, I just gotta say here, sometimes Jack Rayner, who plays Christian, looks like a young Seth Rogen. Like, yeah. if you look directly at him, not so much, but there are moments at certain angles, uh, and he has these certain mannerisms, he just looks so much like Seth Rogen. It, it kept messing with me throughout the whole movie. <laughs> uh, and a, a couple notes on our supporting cast here. So Christian's friend Joel is played by actor William Jackson Harper, who doesn't have any other creepy credits, but he was in The Good Place, and we freaking love that show. Yeah. If I, immediately I was like, oh, is he from The Good Place? <laughs> <laughs> if you've never watched The Good Place, we highly recommend William Jackson Harper is also the only American actor in the film. Jack Rayner, although born in Colorado, he's Irish. Florence Pugh is English, and Will Poulter is English. Uh, he plays Nitwit Mark, and you know, the minute his face flashed on screen, I was like, where do I know him from? Mm -hmm. Did he seem familiar to you? Oh, I, yeah, I knew I'd seen him in other things. He's, um, is he in, well, I bet you're going to tell me. Right? I, I am going to tell you. Uh, he's he's not really in any other films or anything that I recognize. However, he was in a game we really like. A game we really like. Yeah, it was a trilogy, and it's called The Dark Pictures. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was the one who, that, it's got that narrator mm -hmm. who comes in and talks to mm -hmm. you, and then you go back and you'll, you'll switch around and play as different characters. Well, he was in the one called Little Hope, where the bus crashes. Yeah. And they're trapped in that town. Yeah. I recognize uh, his face now that you said that. Yeah. Do you, do you not get it? As yeah. soon as I read that, I was like, holy crap, that is him. Yeah. Uh, we also watched Dark Pictures, Man of Medan, and the third game in that trilogy actually comes out this October and it's called Dark Pictures, House of Ashes. And I swear you can see what appears to be the Pazuzu statue from The Exorcist. Or at least something real close to it Ooh. in the trailer for that one. So I'm excited for that. I am very excited. Well, back to this particular piece of entertainment. Mark is trying very hard to convince Christian to break up with Danny. Which apparently he's been wanting to do for the past year. And Josh just thinks he's using the failing relationship to distract him from the work he should be doing, which is figuring out what his thesis should be to earn his PhD. We also see the waitress come over and her and Christian share a little flirty moment, to which Mark says, see, you could be getting her pregnant, to which Pele adds, and don't forget all the girls in Sweden you can impregnate in June. 
which is our first mention that the guys plan on going to Sweden over the summer break. Bum, bum, bum. Dun, dun, dun. Just then, the phone rings again, and much to the chagrin of everyone at the table, it's Danny again. And Fucknuts Mark actually says that this is abuse that she's calling him. <laughs> he really believes that someone going through something emotionally and reaching out to the one person that is literally supposed to be there to support you is abuse. Yeah. Checks out. <laughs> I mean, maybe if this relationship had only been a thing for, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, if you're like brand new into it and you just haven't re- established that camaraderie yet, you know, that uh, place to be <laughs> raw like that with each other, then yeah, I, I, I get that. That would be overwhelming. Yeah. At a first. little much. A little but, much. Yeah. Well, they're together four years. We we come to find out they've been together four years. Yeah. And this is abuse. How yeah. dare she? I feel like we've, we've been in it for a while. You should know how to emotionally support your girlfriend. Yeah. Well, as as the movie goes on, we are going to uh, realize that Mark is a immature, emotionally stunted idiot. Uh, but he does bring some damn fine comic relief later in the film. So we're going to allow it. Yes. Uh, just to keep the movie going forward. Well, Christian gets up and walks away from the table to take the call, and when he answers the phone, something is definitely wrong, and all we hear is Danny wailing and screaming, no, 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 over and over. We then cut back to Danny's parents' house, and we see firemen entering the home through the garage, where we see the sister Terry has hooked hoses up to the exhaust pipes of both cars in the garage, run them up through the house and place one under the door of the parents' bedroom and the other one she has taped directly over her mouth. It's rough. Oh, it is horrifying. Danny's entire family is dead, which means when we saw the parents sleeping in bed earlier, we were actually watching them slowly die of carbon monoxide poisoning. We see Christian arrive at Danny's apartment, her grief so strong we can hear her wailing from outside, which makes Mr. It's so hard to be there for you emotionally hesitate before finally going inside. But he does, and he holds her while she continues to sob as the camera pushes through the window of her living room into the dark, snowy landscape beyond. And finally, after 12 minutes and 12 seconds, we finally get our opening credits and a title card. The tiniest title card there ever was. <laughs> it was. We were like, should we get a boomerang and put it on Instagram, let people know we're watching? And we were like, okay, it's going to come any minute. Finally, it comes up and we're like, That's I was like, it? I don't think we're going to be able to read that. <laughs> can't even see it it's like all hidden in the snow yeah yeah i do want to say right here that i think this scene i mean i was already really excited about this movie but this scene in particular obviously there's a lot happening we're introduced to this world in a pretty aggressive manner and really kind of thrust into these people's lives but it's done really well we're able to establish every single one of these people's personalities very quickly mm-hmm. in 12 minutes we know exactly who these people are and the kind of people that they are and also we have 12 minutes to be introduced to Danny who is able to convey like you said somebody that's 
codependent, somebody that is, uh, you know, dealing with a lot, who clearly has dealt with the, this kind of um, behavior before from her sister. Um, it's mentioned that her sister's kind of made these threats before mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And she's just kind of dealing with it in the best way that she can. But the scene where she gets the news and she's breaking down is so fucking raw. Mm-hmm. It's so real. I just, I don't know. I can't imagine being in this scene when, when she's playing, like having to like walk away from the scene. Everybody else in this room, I would be like, I I need to take a break. <laughs> it's a lot because she just does it so good. I, I think it's, it's hard to capture that emotional pain that is very much obviously also physical pain Mm -hmm. you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and that can that type of pain is is hard to portray on screen and I thought she did it really really well and like I said well this is just the first 12 minutes and as I'm sitting there on the couch watching this I was just like holy shit okay we're really doing it we are jumping into this thing all right I mean I was already all in but I am fully in now yeah, uh, there there's going to be another scene later on in the movie mm-hmm. where she also has to uh, really bring that yeah. that raw emotion. Uh, and man, Florence Pugh can certainly she can go there. Mm-hmm. She, she can she can pull it from way deep. It, mm-hmm. It's impressive. Yeah. Well, after our very hard to read opening sequence, we once again return to Danny's apartment. And we do that by having the camera pan back in through the window, only this one is in Danny's bedroom. But by doing that, we can see the landscape outside has changed. There's no longer snow on the ground, uh, so time has passed and spring has sprung. So the camera pans over to Danny's bed where we see her napping, or at least trying to nap. We also see a very interesting painting above Danny's bed. On the wall, there is a painting of a bear and a woman wearing a crown. This is the painting Stackers Eat a Base, which I'm sure I'm not saying that correctly, but it translates to Poor Little Bear, and it's by Swedish painter John Bauer, famous for his art based on Swedish folklore and mythological creatures. Of course, by the time we reach the end of the film, we will see that this was significant. In the scene, we can also see that all of her house plants are dying, which I believe is also significant. We'll talk about that later. Next, we see Christian come in to check on her. She says she's up, that she couldn't really sleep. He tells her that he's going to go to that party for about 45 minutes, but she should just go ahead and sleep and he'll be back in a bit. Uh, So a bit of a disclaimer here. On my first watch through, I didn't realize that time had passed. I thought this was like the next morning. Yeah, I did too. And I was like, look, I know you're an asshole, but you're seriously going to abandon your girlfriend who just lost her entire family less than 24 hours ago to go to a party? (laughs) Fuck you, dude. But then on my second viewing, I realized yeah. there was no snow. Yeah. It's been a few months. I, I literally did the exact same thing. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> He's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to go to the party for like 45 minutes. I don't know. I'll be back. And you'll, you'll be fine, right? You, you just rest. It's fine. <laughs> just, you know, you take it easy. I'll bring you back some sloop. It'll be fine. <laughs> uh, uh, well, now make no mistake. Christian is still a total fucking douchebag. Oh, this was the scene that did it for me. I was like, oh, no, he's really a good guy. 
<laughs> you were convinced? Yeah, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Uh, well, she tells Christian that she'll go with him. Yay, this will be fun. A still grieving woman and her emotionally distant boyfriend going to a party. What Sign could go wrong? me up. <laughs> Well, next we cut to the party, and the gang's all there. Danny, Christian, Josh, Mark, and Pele. And they are talking to some other people about what their plans are over the summer break. And they let it slip that the four boys are all going to Sweden to visit Pele's commune for a month and a half so Josh can work on his thesis and witness their midsummer festival. And this is, of course, all news to Danny. They've been planning this trip for months, which starts in two weeks, by the way. Uh, It's a super awkward scene, followed by a super awkward car ride home, as it's painfully obvious that everyone knew about this except Danny, Mm -hmm. uh, and that no one else knew that Danny didn't know either. Uh, So everyone is just, no one knows what the fuck to say, what to do. Uh, And this is all fucking douchebag Christian's fault. We're going to see he just doesn't tell people shit. Yeah. But I mean, seriously, you're going to leave the country for a month and a half. And you don't think maybe you should discuss that with the girlfriend you've been dating for multiple years. I mean, at the very least, okay, if you're going to be a dick and not want to talk to her about it, whatever. It's your prerogative. But things have changed now. I mean, like her whole family has died. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's a, a sense of isolation and and feeling alone now and i and no i i feel like that's a lot to put on one person in a partnership i understand that but at the same time as the partner at the very least tell her like that's that's what it comes down to is the fact that he didn't even bother to tell her yeah it's just common decency yeah even if there hadn't been a tragedy in her life yeah you still should possibly mention that yeah She's going to notice that you're not around for a month and a half. Yeah. <laughs> well, you haven't answered my calls. I, I bet you're probably sleeping. I'll let you keep uh, sleeping in. I'll check back in tomorrow. Well, I, I seem to miss you again. I'm sure you're at work. I'll check back in tomorrow. Okay, I love you. <laughs> Message is full. What? It's only been two days. Well, all this stuff is, of course, the point that Danny brings up once they get back to her apartment. Christian tries to play it off as no big deal that he just decided today that he was going. He wasn't trying to keep it from her. But Danny says, uh, you already bought the ticket. To which Christian replies, I'm sorry? (laughs) He says it just like that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, it's a fucking question. Yeah. I almost came off the couch. <laughs> I was like, you, what? <laughs> I was like, holy shit. It gets worse, though. Yeah. I was yelling so loud. Uh, he, he then stokes up that gaslight and twists everything around to where Danny backs down from her extremely valid point and ends up being the one who actually apologizes. Yeah. It's infuriating. And I hope I I hope Christian is attacked by bees. <laughs> I just I you know I don't want to wish anyone's death. Just you know just sting him a few times, puff up his lips or something. Yeah, he he was he really was. This this scene really just I I think this was the scene that made me in my notes write down how much I really was like not enjoying his character, mm-hmm. just because the, this exact scene going from the fact that like you said she had an extremely valid point to immediately. 
and you could just see again it just goes to prove again how good she is at acting but you could see a physical change in her from her going and not that she was yelling at her being very abrasive and like saying it with her chest or anything like that but she was just like hey like it'd be cool if you maybe would have just brought that up with me you know she was being totally reasonable in her argument too she wasn't nagging at him or getting on to him she was like hey if you wouldn't mind maybe in the future yeah and then immediately he twists it and she you know she kind of falls forward and she kind of shrinks into herself she's like you know look you're right i'm sorry i apologize you know i'm i'm freaking out i'm blowing this out of proportion or whatever and it's like no the fuck you're not no it's oh god it's just (laughs) so infuriating i also love how the first part of this scene is shot uh we see the camera directly pointed at danny but we can see Christian reflected in the mirror mm-hmm. from across the room. So we're watching them have this conversation, but they're very much separated. Yeah. There is no connection here. And you're seeing that quite literally. I, I love how that was done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, next we are at Christian's apartment and the four guys are talking about the upcoming trip. Mark wants to know if there are any meatball sex clubs they should check out before heading to Pele's commune. What the fuck is a meatball sex club? I don't know. Does that just mean like weird freaky shit in general or is he specifically looking for stuff involving meatballs? I don't think I want to Google it. (laughs) I would not recommend it. Yeah, I think I'm good. (laughs) Well, everyone's got their own kink. I mean, (laughs) you know. No kink shaming here. I'm just not going to Google it. Just trust. I'm trusting you. To each his own. You and your meatballs, keep your space, and me and my me will keep my space. (laughs) It's my meatball-free space. Thank you much. (laughs) Well, in the middle of their conversation, Danny texts Christian to buzz her up. Before she arrives, Christian tells the guys that he's invited Danny to come along on the trip. He doesn't think she's actually going to go. He just invited her so it wouldn't be weird. What I also love about the scene is that clearly he's been sitting here with his friends. They're like, there's drugs on the table. They've been smoking and everything. So they've been hanging out. But yet again, we have an example here of Christian waiting to the last fucking minute to mm-hmm. say something. Yeah. And here comes Danny. She's at the door ringing and he's like, oh yeah, by the way, I need you guys to act cool because I invited Danny. But don't worry, she's not really going to go. It's like... You couldn't have brought this up, given them some time to kind of come to some sort of agreement or something beforehand. Exactly. Yeah, it's he, just he only thinks about himself. Oh my gosh. He is the most self-absorbed person on the planet. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention, he's not the one who fucking planned this trip in the first place. No. He was invited yeah. to a foreign country <laughs> by someone. I where, where is it your place to just tell other people sure you can come and he's like staying with his family like it's not like oh yeah come with me you guys can get an airbnb and you know hang out and see the area it's like they're going to stay with him and his family yes for this festival so yeah it's it's pretty interesting that he's like sure i invited everybody i just felt like everybody on the street would want to come with us we'd all carpool i thought it would be okay yeah well he m night shyamalams him one more time because right before he opens the door he's like oh and by the way i told her it was your guys's idea that uh you wanted her to go yeah seriously is it your mission to emotionally hijack everyone around you what is this dude's oh douchebag all right so danny comes in and it's another awkward scene where everyone feels uncomfortable 
And we get that same use of mirrors here again yeah. as the three guys are sitting together in the living room and Danny and Christian can now be seen across the room reflected in a mirror above the couch. It's just another way of showing how Danny is the outsider to this group. She's she's like the Yoko coming in and, and splitting the band up. Mm-hmm. Well, next, Mark makes a lame-ass excuse about needing to talk to Christian about something he's working on, uh, which leaves Danny alone with Pele and Josh. Pele at least greets her with kindness. We also see that Pele is an artist, and he's been sketching the cluttered coffee table in front of him. Uh, when she asks about it, he kind of immediately closes the book and puts it beside him like he doesn't want her to see what he's been working on. Uh, we do briefly get to see that drawing, and it does appear to be the table in front of him, although in his drawing, the table seems to be more cluttered. I only bring this up because I, I saw a lot on online that some people uh, believe there might be some sort of Easter egg here, and, and they were really trying to study that picture to see if there was something hidden. I really think this was just to establish that Pele is a talented artist. Uh, we are going to see that come into play later. Uh, and we do learn that there is something in this book that he may not have wanted her to see yet. So I think that's the only reason he put it up so quickly. I don't think there's anything hidden. I think we good. I agree. Okay. Well, let's move on. I trust you. Thanks. Well, they go on to make some small talk, which I guess is just too much for Josh, who gets up and leaves. And Danny tells Pele she's excited for the trip and that they'll be there on her birthday. Hmm. How fortuitous. Interesting. Hmm. Almost like it was meant to be. Hmm. Predestined, you say? Hmm. I did say. Is that is that fate knocking on that door? <laughs> <laughs> A little destiny. Alright. Well, he tells her it's a special nine-day festival with lots of pageantry and dressing up. She says it sounds like fun. He says it'll probably seem silly, but it's like theater. He then shows her some photos of last year's festivities, including last year's May Queen. He then tells her that he's really glad she's coming. And finally, we see someone actually treat Danny with some kindness. He then tells her that he's sorry that he hadn't yet had the opportunity to tell her how sorry he was for her loss. This catches Danny off guard, upsetting her, which causes her to apologize for having those pesky emotions always get in the way of a good time. I'm sorry I have feelings like a human. <laughs> uh, well, now it's Pele's turn to apologize. He truly didn't mean to upset her as she runs off to the bathroom to cry. But when she shuts the door behind her, it's not the bathroom in Christian's apartment. She's now in the bathroom on an airplane. We have jumped forward in time, and the group is now off on their sweetest vacation, and Danny has indeed decided to come along. Danny finally comes out of the bathroom, and we see the plane is making its final approach into Stockholm as the plane enters a bit of turbulence, perhaps foreshadowing what's in store for them. I love these little um, transitional camera cues that we have throughout this movie, like like the window one you mentioned and this one where they're really seamless jumps in time, but but we're able to visually see that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, I mean, they're, they're very small and simplistic, but at the same time, I really enjoyed it. Uh, specifically this scene, I just thought it was, I'm sure it's been done before, I'm not sure. I, 
I don't watch all the movies. Uh, <laughs> but it was it was nice enough for me to take notice. And, and then, like you said, the, the window one, I really enjoyed. Um, it took me until my second watch around, like I said, to notice the time change, like you said. Um, but once I did, it made me appreciate that even more, just because mm-hmm. I was able to realize that that's really the point of those transitions to kind of help do that time jump as well. Right. And, and it does help. However, you know, Aster has said many times that it is very purposeful that going forward, it is very difficult to tell time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're going to get to Sweden, northern Sweden in the summer, land of the midnight sun. So it doesn't get dark for very long. Uh, the sun is up most of the time so that makes it difficult is it night is it day what's going on and and that is purposeful it's supposed to be very disorienting we are supposed to be kind of uh following along this journey of of our main characters and they're uh just as disoriented Mm -hmm. and and so that really helps kind of keep us keep us in line with what's going on and that is pure confusion oh yeah i was i was fully in line on that confusion (laughs) line the whole time i don't know if i left well, we are now in the rental car. Mark is the first dipshit to speak, commenting on the hotness of the women in Sweden. He wonders what it is that makes them hotter, and Josh tells him it's because all the Vikings grabbed all the hottest babes from all the other countries and dragged them over here. Hmm. Interesting statement. <laughs> we'll put a pen in that. Uh, and then we get probably... My favorite shot in the whole film. Uh, We see an exterior shot of the car with its passengers driving down the road. The camera moves over the top of the car and then flips upside down. We now follow the car along the road upside down until they drive under a sign showing they've arrived in Halsingland, which is where Paley's commune called Harga is located, and the camera rights itself again. This is a clear indicator that our not-so-merry band of travelers are definitely not in Kansas anymore. They're in the Upside Down. They're in the Upside Down. Uh, More literally, their world is about to be completely turned upside down. Yeah. Everything they once knew is gone. (laughs) It's all gone now. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that Wizard of Oz analogy. Uh, So... Ari Aster has said in interviews, and, and I can't remember if he said someone pointed it out to him or if he just kind of came to it on its own. But after the film was done, uh, he, people really started to notice kind of this parallel between this movie and The Wizard of Oz. Uh, it, it's kind of, you know, uh, Danny's our Dorothy and she's going on to this journey kind of to this strange other land uh, kind of in search of herself, really. She's she's really kind of lost, and she has these these travelers with the with her these these goofy idiots, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so if you just kind of keep that in mind as you're watching this this movie, uh, you'll see you'll find some interesting parallels. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Uh, so they arrive at what Paley calls their first destination. It's basically a large field where all the members of the cult, I'm sorry, I mean commune, that have (laughs) been away from home are now gathering for kind of a pre-game gathering before they go on to the village Mm -hmm. commune place. 
where they actually live. Uh, a little tailgating, if you will, yeah. as we call it here in the States. Do they have tailgating in other countries? What do they call it there? You know, here in here in America, we got our big trucks. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know. That's... And, and you know, we, you put your tailgate down and you sit in a parking lot like a bunch of goobers with your friends and you drink a lot before the game and cook hot dogs and that kind of thing. We call it tailgating. Yeah. It's not as fun as the midsummer one, though. Theirs gets wild. Theirs gets a little crazy. Uh, they got more in beer and sausages there. Yeah. Uh, so Pele starts introducing the group to some of his quote-unquote family. Uh, we also see that doofus Mark is terrified of bugs. <laughs> He's navigating through the high grass of this field trying to avoid them, which is basically like trying to avoid the unavoidable. The bugs are just everywhere, dude. Uh, and he has his jeans tucked into his socks so they can't get into his pants. Uh, then we meet Pele's brother, Ingmar. Keep in mind, when I say Pele's brother or sister, these aren't necessarily blood relatives. This is just how they refer to each other in their community. They are just one big happy family, whether they're actually blood-related or not. So Ingmar has apparently also brought some friends with him. This is couple Connie and Simon from London. And this is perfect timing because the three of them have just taken some of them magic mushrooms. And they haven't even started rolling yet, so it's just the perfect time for them to join in. Uh, everyone seems game, except for Danny, who's totally down to do it. She just wants to get acclimated and settled first. You Which know, is like so totally reasonable. Totally reasonable. They, they're not even at their destination yet. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, Christian has to make it look like he's concerned for her. But trust me, this is a classic form of manipulation. So he tells her, look, you don't have to take these at all if you don't want to. And she's all, no, I'm totally fine. I really just want to get settled first. So he's like. Well, then I'll just wait for you so we can we can roll together. And turns around and announces to this group, most of which are people she hasn't met before, guys, I'm just going to wait for Danny. Yeah. Uh, which the rest of the group starts bitching about. But then we'll come up at different times, and that's no fun. So this, of course, puts Danny on the spot, making her feel guilty about her own personal decision. So now she feels like she's letting the group down and she's so insecure about upsetting everyone that she backs down and agrees to take the damn shrooms. Fuck you, Christian. Fuck you, Christian. Also, drugs are bad, kids. Stay in school. Do it. I mean, stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> also, quick side note, uh, Connie, one half of our couple from London, is played by actress Alora Torchia, who does have one other creepy credit, and that is a movie called In the Earth, which came out earlier this year. Oh. So the group takes their shrooms and they end up stoned as fuck in the middle of this field, sitting under a tree. Of course, <laughs> the first to start freaking out is dumbass Mark, who <laughs> he's like, what time is it? And someone says, it's a little after 9 p.m. He's all like, what? That's impossible. The sun's still out. They're like, it's fine. It's Sweden. <laughs> and Mark's like, it's not fine. Why is it like that? And Pele has to remind him that it's the midnight sun. Uh, so basically, this is the time of the year when the sun only sets for a couple of hours. But Mark doesn't like it. 
Then a random person just walks by, and that freaks Mark out. So he announces that he's going to lie down, and he wants everyone else to lie down, too. It really is a fantastic, hilarious scene that I think is much needed to relieve a little tension before we move on to what awaits us in this commune. Yeah. I, I mean, I was laughing my ass off at it's, this scene. It's so good. And and that's one thing I definitely have to give Will Poulter because, granted, his, his character does come off like this just immature kind of douchebag. His comedic relief throughout this movie is just... It's so good. And like and like we both said, we at one point both asked each other, like, is this meant to be a comedy? Because we kept laughing out loud. We felt that we were like, is this supposed to be funny? Are we doing this wrong? Yeah. I just, we had no idea that there was this much humor in it. And it really is funny. Yeah, it was so good. I still just, <laughs> when that, when that person just walks past their group, it's, uh, it's just such it should be such a non-issue, but the fact that they are all high as shit. Yeah. They're just like, uh-oh, new people. I'm not ready for new people right now. I love that he is so upset that nobody else will lay down with him. Like, he's so distressed. And I think he even says that. He's like, I need you to lay down with me. Yeah. He's like, Josh, you really need to lay down. <laughs> and he's like, you guys are really like my family. <laughs> Well, Pele asks the group if they can feel the energy coming up from the earth. This causes Danny to look down at her hand where she can see the grass is now growing through her hand. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with shrooms, uh, they gonna cause you to see some shit. Uh, so this isn't really happening, uh, but she thinks it's happening. We can also see the bark on the trees moving and Everything is a lot more fluid than it normally appears. Danny is definitely tripping. So remember I mentioned the dying plants we saw in Danny's apartment. Here is when we first see Danny start to reconnect with the earth. Albeit only symbolically, since this is just a drug-induced hallucination. But I believe it's a hint into her subconscious. Uh, showing her deep desire to make a connection with someone or something greater than herself. She desperately sought that through her family, but was overshadowed by her mentally ill sister. And of course, she has sought it in her train wreck of a relationship with Christian, who is way too self-serving to meet her needs. So with her life and through her grief previously, she had become very unconnected to the natural flow of things. But here in Harga, at least for Danny, Things are a bit different. So she starts to have a mini freak out and feels she has to get up and walk. She keeps telling herself not to freak out, but as she approaches another group of people who are sitting in a circle in the field, uh, they all turn around and laugh at her. So she walks away from them. She makes her way to the large outhouse in the field and shuts the door behind her. She gets a match lit to light a candle in the room. And for a brief moment, she sees the reflection of her dead sister in the mirror behind her. It's about as close as we're going to come to any kind of crazy jump scare mm -hmm. in this movie. Uh, if if you're looking for that, if, if you're thinking you're going to come in and there's going to be like crazy jump scare moments and creepy stuff like that, it, that's not 
this kind of movie. No. That's not where your horror is going to come from. Danny then gets a, uh, a sight of her own reflection, which appears to be kind of undulating and moving. So this freaks her out more, and she goes running out of the outhouse into the woods. The screen then goes black, and Danny has a vision of her family sitting on the couch at home watching TV, and her sister just stares at her. Next, we see Danny passed out on the forest floor, and Christian is trying to wake her up. Danny wakes and asks how long she was asleep. Christian tells her they found her there six hours ago. So basically, it's now the next day. Next, we see all the people who had gathered in the field now take a sort of pilgrimage on foot to the commune. Some people, mainly Mark, are complaining about <laughs> how long it's taking. But Danny is starting to notice some more of the magic and beauty of this place. As they get closer to the compound, tiny, beautiful yellow flowers cover the ground of the trail they've been following, leading them right into Harga. So here we have another parallel to the Wizard of Oz. They followed their own sort of yellow brick road to get to this magical land they've been seeking. Also, there's a fantastically hilarious conversation here where Mark is freaking out about the ticks, and then the rest of them start fucking with him, saying things like, oh yeah, both my grandparents died from ticks, or my cousins all got Lyme disease. At least I assume they're fucking with him. I can't imagine statistically that many people <laughs> in a small group would be tragically affected by ticks. But perhaps I'm not aware of the true epidemic of tick incidents there are worldwide. But keep in mind, this whole scene is stemmed from Ari Aster's irrational fear of ticks. Like Mark, Aster wore two pairs of socks over his jeans to ensure he would not receive any bug bites. I don't blame him. I Ticks are just not something I want to mess with. They're no joke. I, I mean, and Lyme me disease out. is no joke either. But it's not, luckily, luckily it's not very common so i mean put on some offspring you should be all right and just be aware i'll try you'll be fine well the group enters harga through a large wooden archway that looks like the sun and step into basically a painting it's beautiful and charming everyone in the village is dressed in white and looks perfect there's cows and chickens and dogs running around the architecture on the homes and communal buildings it's clean and beautiful and perfect. Again, it's so charming. It's it's truly picturesque, which means it's probably hiding a whole lot of horrors. Of course, Idget Mark has to chime in and say, So we're stopping in Waco before we go to the village, huh? <laughs> Dumbass. Also, other thing that made me laugh here was <laughs> there's this lovely ethereal music playing as they enter, kind of a fluttery flute thing, mm -hmm. and you think it's the soundtrack of the film. But when the camera pans around, there's just three people standing there <laughs> with recorders. You know, those things you had to play in the fifth grade mm -hmm. in music class? It just it made me laugh. They're just standing there. Doo -doo 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 -doo. <laughs> it's just absurd. Uh we then see more villagers come over and present them with strawberries on sticks to eat, and they take their luggage for them. Then one of the elders comes over to greet them. This is Father Odd, uh, which isn't a much better name than the Father Old that I first thought it was. Uh, I was like, Old? Well, that's a rude name. Odd Father is Odd. A much better. I, I hope it means something else in Swedish. 
I, I think it's pretty suitable for this whole situation. <laughs> well, true, true. Uh, well, Odd comes over and welcomes them all to Harga and even turns directly to Danny, giving her a hug and welcoming her home. Another thing worth mentioning here is that when the villagers speak in Swedish, it's not always translated in closed captions, meaning just like our American visitors, we too have no idea what's being said sometimes. That's a very purposeful choice by Aster to make sure that we are just as in the dark as our characters. Well, next, although the official ceremonies don't begin until tomorrow, today's festivities start, and this begins with a bunch of children running in, followed by some adults playing more instruments. But again, I was cracking up laughing <laughs> because the kids are running so fast, and the musicians are having to, like, walk very briskly to keep up with them as they're playing these mm -hmm. instruments but the song is slow so it doesn't match how fast they're walking i don't know if that was intentional but it made me laugh they just look ridiculous they're just like walk real fast walk real fast but walking real fast walking real fast well, the kids and musicians make it up to a stage area. Keep in mind, this is all outside in nature, as a midsummer festival should be. And they place crowns on what I'm assuming is more of the elders in the village. Then their leader, Siv, gets up and greets and welcomes them all. So this is basically like an opening ceremonies. We learn that although they have a midsummer celebration every year, this special feast they only do every 90 years. And of course, in the middle of this very sacred and time-honored tradition, Chucklenut's Mark is just over there vaping like a fucking Chad. <laughs> it's like, dude, this is someone's church. Show a little fucking respect. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> well, next we get like a three-second shot of someone finger-painting uh, that has a very deformed face uh, we're assuming it's a deformity it could be uh, numerous bee stings could be those bees that I'm looking for for Christian yes uh, the face is very swollen most notably the lips could be Kylie Jenner none of us know <laughs> we don't uh, but we're given no context and no explanation three seconds is all you get and we move on Back to the opening ceremonies, Siv is passing out fire torches to two older villagers, uh, the two oldest people we've seen in the village thus far, actually, and then she screams into the air, spirits back to the dead. Ceremony over. It wasn't the Olympics, but hey, they're a <laughs> tiny village. They do what they can. We've done a lot of traveling, and we've never been welcomed with fire torches, and I feel like that's something that we're missing out on. I mean, I could light a little candle for you every time we enter a new state <laughs> if you so see fit it seems it seems very monumental though like every time we get to a new state we have to like get out and light a candle i feel like this could be fun well i mean we've seen how the rest of this festival goes <laughs> maybe we just stick with the candle okay all right well, next we see Maya, a pretty redheaded teenage villager, fixing her hair and doing an odd breathing exercise before leaving the room she's in to join the festivities. We also see a strange symbol made up of runes on the door to the room. 
She comes outside and we see the rest of the younger villagers, uh, all those in their 30s and younger, are holding hands, dancing in these long trailing lines of people interweaving throughout our spectators sitting in groups on the ground. Simon, the male half of our couple from the UK, asks Pele what game they're playing. Pele tells him it's called Skin the Fool and that they're allowed to join in if they want to. Then, as one of the lines of people comes traipsing past our merry band of travelers, Maya gently, but not so subtly, kicks Christian on the bootay. And it's also, like, kind of not gently. Like, she kind of aggressively kicks him. She does. (laughs) The first time I watched this, I was like, ow! Like, I would have been like, excuse me, the fuck? (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know if she left a mark or anything, but... I think it's just more so, like... The fact that it's just a sh- like they haven't known each other to establish that this is flirting yet, right? And so this is just completely brand new. And he, she's just like, "Hi, kick right into the thigh." <laughs> it's just like very aggressive of a welcoming. It's just, I would much rather have the fire torch if I could pick a welcoming. Well, uh, he gets it, uh, and so he of course asks, he does. <laughs> yeah, he does, and he asks Pele. Uh, so anyone can just join in. To which Pele says, uh, "You're an American. Just jam yourself in there." Again, I did not expect this movie to be so damn funny. (laughs) Well, don't think that Danny didn't notice that little interaction between Maya and Christian. We all noticed it, Danny, and yes, Christian is still a total douchebag. Because after he gets up to join the dance, along with Mark and Josh, Pele hands Danny a drawing he made of her, complete with a crown of flowers and two runes written at the bottom, and tells her, Happy birthday she tells him thank you and that it's beautiful and that it means a lot because christian forgot it was her birthday and we were all shocked and surprised (laughs) pele says oh with a look of pity on his face and danny immediately has to go into defensive mode for christian and says no 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 i just forgot to remind him it was my birthday. So obviously this is all my fault. No. Oh my God. No. No, the heck it's not. No, bitch, no. It is not your fault. It is not your responsibility to remind someone who is supposed to care about you that it is your birthday. You've been together for four years. He should remember by now. If he can't be bothered to do the bare minimum of putting a reminder in his damn phone that it's your birthday. Get out of here. Fuck that guy. Get out of here. Douchebag. Dump that guy. Join a cult. Oh, halfway there. (laughs) Also, about these runes we can see on Pele's drawing and throughout the village, these are actual runic symbols We learn from a tour of the village the group takes next that these runes are from the Elder Futark alphabet, which is the oldest form of runic alphabets dating back to the 2nd through 10th centuries in Scandinavia. We never learn specifically what any of the symbols mean throughout the course of the film, but you know I got you. So the two (laughs) runes we see on the drawing Pele gives Danny are Rado and Dagez. Rado means travel, journey, or reunion. And Dagez means awakening or new beginning. Hmm. 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 Interesting. Next, during the tour, we see our two couples, Danny and Christian and Connie and Simon, have a little get-to-know-you sesh. 
And all you really need to take away from this is that Christian can't even remember how long they've been together, which is four years, four years in two weeks to be exact. Next, the group sees a large pyramid-shaped yellow building and Christian asks about it. Pele tells him it's a sacred temple, but no one's allowed in there. Our group then splits up. Pele takes our main four off to see the group's sleep quarters. And Ingmar takes Connie and Simon off to see something else that has a foreign name, so I can't tell you what it is. But as they split up, we see a large bear just sitting in a cage. And Simon says, so we're not going to talk about the bear. And Ingmar says, it's a bear and moves on. Easy enough. But soon something else catches Connie's eye and they go over to check it out. It's a tapestry that's been painted that Ingmar says is kinda a love story. So in the first panel, we see a young woman looking at the man she fancies. In the second panel, she appears to be picking flowers backwards. The rest all plays out in separate panels and shows the girl placing the flowers under her pillow and dreaming about her crush. The next morning, she trims off some of her pubic hair and collects her menstrual blood into a cup. She then bakes the pubes into a meal and serves the pube meal and blood-filled cup to her crush, which then bewitches him and they fall in love. The end. No, thank you. It's really more of a love spell than a love story. I don't want either. <laughs> no, not happy story. Very icky story. Thank you. Bye-bye. You can keep it. No, thank you. <laughs> I no check this book out again. Sorry. Return to Klein. No, thank you. <laughs> Bad review. One star made me vomit. <laughs> not what I was expecting. Thank you. Also, it's worth noting uh, that you are constantly going to see other villagers going about village tasks in the background throughout the film, one of them being harvesting and collecting a lot of hay. Like, a lot of hay. So much hay. They have I, a lot of hay. I mean, this is a farming community, and midsummer does correspond with the planting and harvesting of crops, so I'm sure there's nothing else significant that should be derived from the fact that they're constantly gathering so much hay. Nothing at all. Nothing. Everything is perfectly normal. Nothing nefarious here. Just just some humble hay. <laughs> Psst, can I interest you in some humble hay? <laughs> well, next we switch back to our main group, which has arrived at the building that serves as their sleeping quarters. They walk in, and the room is painted almost floor to ceiling in these intricate, beautiful scenes that depict Harga's history and traditions. It's kind of their version of the Sistine Chapel. It's beautiful. It is. It's stunning. The art department that put this together. High five. Bravo. Kiss, kiss. Amazing. It's, it's so good. Well, Pele goes on to explain that all the younger members of the community live and sleep in here until they're 36, at which time they move to the laborer's house. He then explains how they think of life like the seasons. And if you're a total geek about symbolism like me, here's where you're really going to start learning about how the number nine is significant to this community and this festival. So we've already heard it mentioned that this Midsummer's festival lasts for nine days. 
Also, at the beginning of the movie, when Danny leaves a message for her parents, eagle-eyed viewers may have caught the answering machine number counts up to nine before it leaves the frame. So that was a nice foreshadowing Easter egg. In addition, Pele explains to the rest of the group the stages of life conceived by Harga's people. 18 years marks the end of childhood, that's spring, so 9 times 2. 18 to 36 are the years they do their pilgrimage, the end of youth at 36, that's summer, 9 times 4. Then 36 to 54 is working age, which is fall, the end of maturity at 54, that's 9 times 6. And finally, age 54 to 72, when you become a mentor, that's winter, the end of life at 72, that's 9 times 8. In addition, the feast itself is celebrated every 90 years, that's 9 times 10. Even the feast's name, Midsummer, has nine letters. So the importance of the number nine derives from the old myth of Odin, father of all Norse gods, who was hung upside down for nine days in order to bring knowledge to the world, thus creating the Futark runes language. Did you get all that? Because there will be a test later. I tried to keep up. I promise. All right. It was a lot, but it was very interesting. <laughs> Just remember multiples of nine. I got it. <laughs> well, Danny then walks over and sees all the photographs of past year's May Queens, but not before she notices Pele having a private conversation with Christian. Pele stops the conversation and explains that a young woman becomes that year's May Queen by winning a dance competition. Just then, Inga, another young woman in the village, comes in to tell them the children are all watching Austin Powers if they would like to join. You know, today's hits. <laughs> what? Really? Is, is there a theater? <laughs> is it like they all crowd around a tiny one of them TVs with a built-in VHS? What's going on here? <laughs> and why Austin Powers? Are there other movies? What else is... I am so intrigued by this mere statement. I had so many questions. I, I, I love so much that it was Austin Powers. I need to know <laughs> why that was the choice. I, I, I just feel like there has to be some sort of private joke there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It just seems so random. I hate that I'm not a part of the joke, but I'm glad that I got to experience it. I don't like being left out either. <laughs> Let's never speak to the people who worked on this again, just because they were rude. Next time, let me in on your joke. Well, also here in this moment, we see that Inga has a little moment with Mark the nincompoop, of all people. This, of course, gets him all excited, exclaiming that he wants to give her a bath. <laughs> what the fuck is that? I don't know. I have never been attracted to someone and just went, I want to give them a bath. Yeah, it's that's a different level. I don't know if I've... I've... That seems borderline serial killer-ish to me. Yeah, I was going to apologize to you for not having those emotions, but I, I don't think... I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, don't be. It's creepy. <laughs> well, meanwhile, Christian pulls Danny outside and has somehow materialized a piece of cake and a candle out of thin air and starts singing happy birthday to Danny. But before you get all, oh, see, he's not such a bad guy. He did remember her birthday. No, he didn't. No. That conversation that Danny saw between Pele and Christian, that was Pele reminding him it was her birthday. Pele brought the cake and gave it to Christian to give to Danny. So he's still a douchebag. He does admit that he forgot after first lying about it and getting caught. 
and then makes the excuse that because of the sun not setting, he actually thought it was yesterday. That's that's why he also didn't say it yesterday. Yes. <laughs> then why didn't you wish her a happy birthday yesterday? Even your lies make you a douchebag. <laughs> also in the background, as this conversation is happening, we can see a group of women, one of them holding a baby, all swaying back and forth in unison, comforting the crying child. Again, everything is perfectly normal. <laughs> Nothing nefarious is happening at all. That doesn't look weird in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> well, that evening, all the young people, meaning ages 36 and younger, are all getting ready for bed. Even though it's still light out, again, very disorienting. Again, you have to understand, this is all young people from age 36 to birth. They all sleep in one large communal space. Even the babies. The crying all night babies. All night crying Babies. I don't know how these people are nice because I would not be able to wake up and be nice. This is why I don't have children. I can't do it. And for people that can and the people out here that are parents, y'all doing it. God bless you. You're doing the tough shit because I can't do it. I need my sleep. Oh my God. So much crying. Well, Pele tells them to all get their rest because tomorrow is the first of the big ceremonies. Josh asks which one and Pele tells him it's an Atastupa. Just like us, no one in our group seems to know what the hell that means, except for Josh, who appears to be in disbelief that Pele is telling him the truth. When Christian inquires as to what it is, Pele just tells him it's too hard to explain, and they'll just have to see for themselves tomorrow. Christian even tries to Google it, but seeing as how they're five miles just outside the middle of nowhere, there's no cell service and definitely no Wi-Fi. But they do have Austin Powers, so we're good. <laughs> the next day, we see everyone gathered at a bunch of tables, and we hear fuckstick Mark say, Someone should tell those girls they're walking funny. <laughs> so the camera pans down to show a group of beautiful young women walking backwards and picking flowers. We next see everyone standing next to their chairs at the tables. Christian asks Paley how long everyone's going to stand, and Paley tells him, We'll stand until it's right to sit. Okay. Very vague. <laughs> Next, a young boy rings a bell, and this prompts two more elders to approach the tables. These are the same two elders we saw the village leader Siv hand torches to in the opening ceremony. It isn't until they sit down that everyone else then sits down. In fact, no one begins eating until they begin eating first. Joss asks Pele if they're the ones... To which he replies, yes. So these are the participants in this Atastupa thing that no one has bothered to explain to our visitors. We can also see that even the tables seem to be set up in some crazy design. Uh, this is very much purposeful for our ceremony as these tables are set up in the shape of another rune. This is the rune Odal, sometimes called Othala, and it's associated with familial groups and inheritance. It usually represents the intangible things we inherit from our families, such as traditions and beliefs. After eating, our elder couple stands and begins chanting and doing some more of those breathing exercises. Obviously, this is more of the ceremony. Siv then stands up and lifts her glass to the couple, 
prompting everyone else to do the same, and it isn't until our elder couple drinks that the rest of the group may also drink. This is obviously a ceremony to honor these two people. Another group of villagers comes out, and they now carry the two elders in their chairs to a new location. At this point, fuckknuckle Mark says he's going to take a nap. In the middle of this sacred ceremony, he's just going to grab a couple of winks. Perfect timing. No problem. We next see our villagers have relocated and are all standing around looking up. One of them holding this huge, long-handled mallet. We then can see what they're all looking at. It's a huge cliff. Huh. And our two elder villagers have been carried in their chairs to the top of said cliff. Huh. Huh. Hmm. Hey, that doesn't seem safe. That's not where you put your elders. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back down at the bottom... Siv reads to the gathered crowd from the Ruby Raider, which is basically their Bible. Josh asks Pele if he would be able to read it, to which Pele tells him, yeah, that's not for outsiders, so not going to happen. So back at the top of that cliff, our elders now have each of their palms sliced open with a knife. They then go over to a rock that has more runes carved into it and smear the blood from their hands onto it. We then see the first of the two elders quietly walk out to the edge of the cliff. And if you haven't figured out what's going on yet, these two people are about to sacrifice themselves by jumping off this cliff. And I cannot possibly describe to you how slow of a buildup this scene is. And yet at the same time, not fucking slow enough. But that's... uh, You know it's coming. You do. That is the problem, and there's not a fucking thing you can do about it. Yeah. And you don't want it to come. Yeah, yeah. It's like one of those things where it's like, you fully are aware that it's happening. I know that while we were watching this, this was that moment that I was just like, "Uh uh-oh, is this the scene that people have been warning me about? (laughs) Uh, And like you said, that buildup is slow, and then once it happens... I found myself being like, oh, nope, my mind wasn't ready for that. (laughs) So I think there should be more. But at the same time, like you said, there's no, uh, um, you know, escaping what's going to happen. So it's it's coming whether you like it or not. Uh, And Aster makes you watch the entire thing. Uh, So first, the woman gets up there, uh, stares right at Danny and then jumps. The camera follows her all the way down as she face plants on the rocks below, bouncing up as her face splits apart and is now obliterated. Of course, our attending foreign guests all begin freaking out, but our villagers are just standing around calmly. We begin experiencing this through Danny's perspective, and the sound has become quite muffled, but we can still hear Ingmar trying to calm down Simon and Connie, our UK visitors, and explaining to them that it's just part of the ceremony. Uh, During this, we get a lovely flashback uh, to the elder woman's destroyed face, uh, but the elder man 
now steps up to the edge of the cliff. Oh, what's that? This isn't fucking over yet? (laughs) Holy shit. We have to go through this again. And our foreign guests start freaking out, begging them to stop him. And we're freaking out, begging them to stop him. And you know the audience in the theater was just absolutely screaming at the screen. And Simon starts yelling at, sir, don't do it, don't do it. But he does it. And he jumps. And he does it wrong. Feet first. Oh, God. It's so fucking stressful. Oh, the audio starts to return to normal just in time for us to hear this guy gagging and choking. He has survived the fall and broken both of his legs, which we see in full detail. The villagers all start screaming and moaning, reflecting the elder man's pain and suffering. But remember that guy in the crowd with that huge mallet? Oh, God. Turns out it is specifically for this occasion that if someone does not die upon impact, you win an all-expenses-paid trip to Face Smash Town. So a small group of villagers comes up and takes turn smashing this dude's face in as we watch every single hit nothing is off screen it's a, it's it's a time it's a time <laughs> it it is it's intense it is super duper intense it is not the first time i've seen this effect done in a movie i remember the first time i saw it and it was one of the most shocking things i've ever seen in my life so it didn't quite have that effect as it did the very first time i saw this effect pulled off but uh it's still, it's still extremely effective. Yeah, it's it's totally. I mean, it, I can't even say it's unexpected because there's such a build up to it that you you know it's happening by that time. You do. Yeah, yeah, but I think what is jolting about it is because it happens so quickly. You you almost expect that surely that's it. You almost kind of put that guard back up I think I think you kind of emulate what Danny does you see um Danny's facial expressions change very very quickly through the, uh, this whole thing and again this is just more credit to Florence Pugh um we have this scene of these people jumping and you can see this moment where she kind of internally flips a switch mm-hmm. um and I feel like as the audience member you kind of do that too because you're kind of like I can't believe I just saw that but at the same time, you realize we just saw somebody else go up there behind her. So there's another person to go. And you're you're just as vulnerable, I guess, as our, our travelers. Us as the audience members are, are in the exact same position they are experiencing this whole thing. And I think what makes it jolting, though, as the audience member, though, is we're not watching the whole thing from start to finish. We get it in flashes Mm -hmm. and without much warning. (laughs) So those images were going from watching our travelers react to it to the scene back to watching their face react to it back to the scene. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's very jarring. Uh, But it's I mean, can you say it's well done? Is that it's well done oh sure (laughs) i mean i mean if you want to look at it from the technical viewpoint of it you know the the makeup effects and there it's it's brilliantly done yeah it's very effective because it fucking looks real 
I think I said during the movie, I was like, Ari Aster loves him a good head headless moment. He loves him some head trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say that he even kind of made a joke that, yeah, don't expect that to go away in any of his movies. Yeah. So I, I think that's kind of going to be, <laughs> I mean, what a thing to make your thing, you know? <laughs> well, at least now we know. We can all establish that, that once we go in. We know it's coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you can imagine, Simon and Connie are freaking out. Simon starts yelling at everyone, telling them they're all fucking crazy that they let this happen and that they're fucking leaving. Well, Siv finally realizes the reactions this has caused and starts apologizing that they were not properly warned that this was going to happen. What they have to understand is that this is a time-honored tradition in their culture, and these people came to this willingly. This is all part of that cycle of life thing Pele was trying to explain. Remember, he said the winter years of a person's life last from ages 54 to 72, meaning when you hit 72, you sacrifice yourself so you won't become a burden to the community and you don't have to suffer through the pain of old age. This is a great joy for any member of Harga. This is what they're meant to do. And they do it willingly. Next, we see everyone leaving the ceremony. Christian asks Danny how she's doing. She says she just really needs to not be there and separates herself from the rest of the group. But instead of going with her, because God forbid he support her emotionally, he says, uh, just take some time to yourself. No, no, douchebag. She's had enough time to herself. Fucking help her. <laughs> dick cheese but instead he goes running off to find josh so for christian's next dickhead move he tells josh whose sole purpose for coming here is to write his master's thesis on midsummer he tells him that he too is now going to write his master's thesis on this place but he does it in a way where he pretends like he's been doing it this whole time right well, no. I mean, he's pretty upfront and says, "Look, I, you know, I came to this decision. This is he basically just says, "It is what it is. I'm going to do this. We can collab if you want to. Uh, but this thing you've been working for your whole entire college career, I've just decided in the last 5 minutes that I'm going to do the same thing and that's just how it's going to be." That's fair, right? <laughs> I'm a good friend, right? <laughs> Well, everyone is upset. Numpty Mark blames Christian for letting him sleep through the ceremony and miss everything, and Simon informs them that he and Connie will be leaving in the morning. But back in the communal sleeping barn, Danny is packing to leave when Pele comes in to try and change her mind about leaving. She doesn't understand why she's even here. She's not an anthropologist. But Pele tells her he was most excited for her to come because he too lost his family in a fire when he was very young, so he knows what it's like to lose your family. But he never had a chance to feel that loss because he was in a community where everyone embraced me and swept me up. He has always felt held by a family, a real family that everyone deserves. He asked Danny, do you feel held by Christian? Does he feel like home to you? Well, before we can get an answer, we cut to the obliterated faces of our two elders who jumped off the cliff. Here it is again. He just... Surprise. Hey, you weren't expecting it. Vulnerable moment. Oh, okay. Here's this. <laughs> it's like, oh, great. I had almost managed to wipe that from my brain. Thank you for reminding me of that horror. I was almost okay again. No, I'm not. Thanks for that. 
Well, we see the villagers have gathered to cremate those bodies. Well, next, Christian finally checks back in with Danny, and instead of saying, I know this had to be traumatizing for you, like Simon is doing for Connie, I'm getting you out of here tomorrow, he just tells her he's trying to keep an open mind about it, so maybe they should just try and acclimate themselves. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yep, I'll just get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I've been meaning to do that this whole time, so I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, I, why didn't I think of that? That just makes it so much easier. Silly me. <laughs> well, later, as the two head off to bed, Danny, now clearly exasperated with Christian and her situation, approaches Josh and asks for one of his sleeping pills, which he gives her. That night, Danny wakes to see the four guys sneaking off and leaving her in the village. When their car pulls away, Danny tries to scream after them, but only black smoke comes out, mirroring the death of her parents and sister, who inhaled the exhaust from the cars. So this is obviously just a dream, complete with visions of her dead family, and some more lovely close-ups of those elder smash faces again. He just <laughs> loves to sneak them in there. Well, later that night, we see Maya, remember that pretty redhead that kicked Christian during the Skin the Fool game? Well, we see her take something and put it under Christian's bed. And we're not the only ones who see Josh Caesar do this as well. The next day, we see some of the villagers collecting the ashes of the two elders that sacrificed themselves and spread them around an old fallen tree. This is obviously another ceremony. There's a group of people singing with a wooden animal effigy. And here comes Twat Waffle Mark walking right through him yelling for Pele. Hey, Pele! <laughs> I mean, what an oblivious idiot. He's just such a jerk. Well, Josh finds out from Pele that he has been granted permission by the elders of Harga to write his thesis as long as he doesn't mention any names or or specific places, and he has to share that information with Christian because he has permission to do his thesis as well. Meanwhile, Ass Monkey Mark excuses himself to go take a piss. Josh says, cool, to the thesis thing, not to Mark taking a piss, uh, and he says to Pele, by the way, do you know what this is? And he shows him that thing that Maya left under Christian's bed. Pele tells him it's a love spell. Mm -hmm. Christian has now joined the conversation and Pele tells him that Maya just got uh, her pants license. Uh, yeah, her her pants. There's a word. It's like uh, Bixmendig or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, basically, she's free to get freaky. She can have the sex now. Um, I like pants license. Pants license was interesting. I want a license for my pants. I've been going pantsless for 29 years. It, quite frankly, I'm surprised they haven't found a way to tax it and make us get sex license here <laughs> it's in the States. honestly very true. Well, next we see another villager, Ulf, begin screaming and running across the field. He is yelling at Dingle Dick Mark, who has apparently decided to take a piss on the sacred dead tree where they scatter their dead's ashes. Doesn't seem like an appropriate response. <laughs> Even when it's explained to him, he still doesn't understand why that's a big deal. Because it's just a dead tree. 
I don't think so. Uh, he's an idiot. It's a tree full of the dead is what it is. <laughs> it's more than just a dead tree. It's where they put the dead peeps. You just <laughs> peed on the peeps. <laughs> well, next we see Connie return to the sleeping barn. She tells Danny it was nice to meet her, but she and Simon are getting a villager to drive them to the train station. But as she's gathering their luggage, Father Odd comes in to explain to her that the truck only had room for two people. So Jan went ahead and took Simon to the station and then will return for her. But she said that doesn't make any sense. Simon would never leave without telling her. She says this is bullshit and storms off. And Odd just tells Danny that lunch is soon and walks off humming. <laughs> nope, nothing wrong here. Everything is still perfectly fine. Well, Danny goes to tell Christian that Simon has left without Connie, which Christian has the audacity to call a dick move. If that's not the dick calling the other dick <laughs> black, that doesn't make sense. Anywho, as usual, Christian can't be bothered to care about anything that doesn't directly affect him. So he just goes back to interviewing a villager for his thesis, which is now another thing he has placed more importance on than Danny and her needs. But we also see that Danny might be seeing that now, too. So Danny's on to him. <laughs> I mean, it's taken her four years, for God's sakes. So she goes off on her own and is asked by some of the women to help bake the meat tarts for the next meal. Meanwhile, Josh is interviewing an elder about the Ruby Raider, their sacred text. It's explained how each book, and there are hundreds of them, covers something different and has blank pages in the end so it can be expanded upon by an oracle. And their current oracle is Reuben, the villager we saw for all of three seconds earlier in the film that looked like he had been stung by hundreds of bees. It turns out Reuben, and indeed all of their oracles, are a product of purposeful inbreeding and specifically created because they believe a disabled mind is unclouded by normal cognition and therefore is open to, quote-unquote, the source of whatever they believe uh, this spiritual knowledge comes from. Uh, so Josh then asks if he can take a picture of the sacred text but is told emphatically no. We then can hear a woman scream from somewhere off in the distance, and we see several of our foreign guests react to it, but not a single villager does. Again, nothing wrong here. All perfectly normal. Everything's fine. People scream around me all the time. <laughs> Next, everyone sits down for lunch, those meat pies Danny helped make. Here we see Maya personally serving Christian his meat pie. Danny asks if anyone has seen Connie, and another villager tells them that Simon called from the train station and calmed Connie down, and then she was driven out to meet him. Christian says that's a relief, but Danny still doesn't understand why he would have left her in the first place. She remarks that it seems like something Christian would do. I love this sassy oh, comment. Oh, God, it was so good. To which he replies, what does that mean? To which she just says, never mind. Next, fuck whistle Mark notices Ulf is still pretty pissed about that whole urinating on their ancestors thing and is just hardcore staring at him through lunch and he wonders if the guy is going to kill him. 
Something tells me you have to wonder that a lot, Mark. (laughs) Well, at this point, our merry band of travelers is definitely falling apart. Christian decides to take a bite of his very special meat tart and finds a pubic hair in it. Delicious. Yummy, which the others notice as well. We also see that his drink, which I'm assuming is lemonade, is slightly pinker. Hate it. Than everyone else's. Don't like it. Hmm. For some reason, that, like, grossed me out more. (laughs) It's all bad. I mean, yeah. So, if you haven't been able to put it together yet, Maya is still trying to cast her love spell on Christian. Remember that tapestry we saw earlier that Ingmar said was kind of a love story? Let me read it to you again. In the first panel, we see a young woman looking at the man she fancies. In the second panel, she appears to be picking flowers backwards. Remember, we saw that actually happen when Mark makes fun of them for walking that way. She then places the flowers under her pillow and dreams about her crush. The next morning, she would trim off some of her pubic hair and collect her menstrual blood into a cup and then bake the pubes into a meal and serve the pubes and blood-filled cup to her crush. Ew. Ew. So basically, ew, ew. Christian just ate her pubes and drank her menstrual blood. I hate it. I feel like maybe we should establish other ways to say, I like you. I mean, send a note. Yeah. Like a high five. Well, maybe a double high five if you really like them. <laughs> Punch him in the arm or something. <laughs> There's no need for blood. <laughs> Well, next, speaking of love, Inga comes over and invites Ass Clown Mark into the woods to show him something. This is the young lady that has been flirting with him since they arrived. He agrees and goes off with her. Meanwhile, we're starting to see that Josh has become obsessed with trying to get a better look at those Ruby Radar books. So that night, after Danny borrows another sleeping pill, he decides to sneak out and get those picks he's been wanting so bad. So Josh makes his way to the building where the books are stored and approaches one that has been set up on a stand in front of what appears to be a two-way mirror. Although we never see anyone on the other side, we can see in its reflection someone else enter the building behind Josh. Josh sees the reflection and spins around, only to discover that it's Fuck Nugget Mark. He tells him to be quiet and to shut the door because they're not supposed to be in there. But he starts to notice something is wrong. Mark isn't wearing any pants. But just then, someone comes over with that same giant mallet that was used to bash old dude's face in and whacks Josh on the head, killing him. We then see that person we thought was Mark isn't Mark at all. They're just wearing Mark's face. That is a twist. And just like that, two of our main characters are dead. Very unexpected. So there seems to be a bit of confusion here about who killed who. Uh, In the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. The village wanted them dead, so they're dead. But what appears to be going on... Obviously, Ulf, not able to forgive Wanker Mark for his blatant disrespect of their customs and traditions the entire time they've been there, uh, really the pissing incident was just the final straw, uh, has disposed of Mark and not just killed him, they have skinned his face off. Remember that game 
the younger village members were playing earlier called Skin the Fool. Yep, they told you a long time ago exactly how Mark was going to die because there is no bigger fool in this village. As for Josh, exactly who dropped the mallet on his noggin is never revealed. However, we do know it's someone different than Ulf because Ulf isn't wearing pants and whomever kills Josh is. Now, when Josh entered the building, we could clearly see the Oracle Reuben was asleep in the corner of the room, but he can still be seen sleeping when Josh spins around to confront who he thinks is Mark, so it's clearly not him. Uh, now, on my second viewing, I was able to go through this section frame by frame, uh, although due to the speed of the turning camera, you can't definitively say it's anyone specific. You can see a third person dressed in white with brown hair crouched in the corner waiting to attack Josh. Ew, creepy. Yeah, real creepy. Now, director Ari Aster has stated who this person actually is. But I'll wait to the end to reveal that. Ooh, mm. answers. Well, the next morning at breakfast, Elder Sten makes an announcement that the 19th book of Ruby Radar has gone missing. But no harm, no foul. They will just leave the temple unguarded and whoever took it can just go put it back. No questions asked. So after breakfast, two more elders approach Danny and Christian and are like, um kind of weird that your two friends go missing at the same time as our little sacred book of course christian immediately throws josh God, under the bus he couldn't have done it faster <laughs> I mean, i'm surprised he didn't walk up to him and be like hey i see that your book's missing <laughs> and my sure. friends are too yeah it was my friend josh for sure uh actually he's not my friend uh don't even know him don't know how we ended up here at the same time <laughs> Well, on top of all this, Pele feels really responsible because he's the one who brought Josh and Mark to the compound, and he is sent off with Father Odd to find them. Danny is informed she'll be doing an activity with the women that day, while Christian has been summoned by commune leader Siv, which he looks terrified about that. He should be. <laughs> he really does. I love when they tell him, and he's just like, um, <laughs> and he very quietly says to Danny, he's like, uh okay he's like yep he's like all right I, I, I guess i will be going yep i have no choice but to leave <laughs> well next we see some of that special tea being prepared as all the younger women over the age of 18 and under the age of 36 gather at the maypole danny's new friend from the village karen explains the particulars of the ceremony we also see Danny is now wearing the traditional outfit of the villagers, including a crown of flowers. Danny looks down to see grass sprouting from her shoes and growing through her feet and realizes she's tripping from the drink. Then after a speech from Elder Irma, who says, Now in life-holding defiance of the Black One, we dance until we fall. Musicians begin to play, and multiple circles of women dance around the maypole. The contest has begun. Meanwhile, as Christian awaits Siv in her house, he notices the art depicted in the wallpaper on the walls, which includes a horrifying scene of a bear being burned alive. What? What? 
Siv joins him and he immediately starts to defend himself against Josh's actions. But Siv ignores this and informs him that he has been selected as Mai's mate because they are the perfect astrological match. He says he thinks he ate one of her pubes and Siv says, sounds about right. Yeah, she's just so nonchalant. She's like, mm, checks out. <laughs> Again, so funny. <laughs> Uh, back out at the dance, we see perhaps for the first time in this entire film, Danny is actually enjoying herself as she's dancing with the women of Harga. Elder Irma yells stop and the women freeze, a couple of them falling to the ground, meaning they're out. They then complicate the dance by now weaving in and out through each other. Another woman falls and she's out. Maya sees Christian and flops worse than an NBA player under the backboard, so she's out. The music stops and more women fall and leave the field. Irma then announces that they are down to the final eight. Danny is thrilled to be doing so well and looks out to Christian, who has joined the other villagers and disqualified dancers, but he's too preoccupied with his Maya problem and isn't even paying attention to Danny, and you can see the disappointment all over her face. Next, one of the village ladies comes over and gives Christian some of the magic tea, which he's reluctant to take at first, but he eventually does. Meanwhile, the dance continues until we are down to three. Danny tries to speak to one of the women in Swedish, and when she can't, the two just start talking in gibberish, seeming to understand everything the other one is saying. Drugs. <laughs> Drugs are fun. No, but really stay in school, kids. Eventually, two of the remaining women run into each other, knocking one another down, leaving Danny as the last girl standing. She won! Yay! Danny has won the competition and has become the May Queen. The whole village claps vigorously in spirit fingers. Spirit fingers. Spirit fingers. Quiet but deadly. <laughs> Irma officially declares Danny the May Queen while she is adorned in a gown made of flowers. Her picture is then taken for inclusion on the wall of May Queens. She is then surrounded by villagers who all come by to congratulate her, including her real but dead father, mother, and sister, who disappear as quickly as they appeared. Pele then comes over to congratulate her and gives her a very intimate kiss on the lips. It's very intimate. Oh, there's something going on there. It's very spicy. Uh, <laughs> I kind of liked it. Well, the only one really that doesn't come congratulate her is Christian, who's just standing off to the side by himself. She's then hoisted on a gold-painted round wooden plank. She searches for Christian, but doesn't seem to see him as the crowd carries her away from him. Forget about him. <laughs> Symbolically, it's time for Danny to leave Christian and the grief and horror of her family's deaths behind her. We can even see in a wide-angle shot as they are carrying Danny with the villagers trailing behind. If you look closely off into the trees to the left you can see an image of Danny's sister on the night she died, complete with the hose in I feel her like mouth. You, I feel like you told me to watch for that on my second watch through, and I couldn't find it, so I still need you to show me. I will show you. 
because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, the scene itself is quite striking. I'm sure you remember which one I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. She's just standing bolt upright as they're physically hoisting her into the air. And it's a wide angle shot. So she is on this platform off to the right with a trail of villagers behind her. So there are trees in the back of this scene. So if you look in that line of trees off to the left, uh, you'll see the the face of the sister. There's also the witch, and then a lighthouse appears, <laughs> and then <laughs> it all comes together. It's all the A twenty four universe. <laughs> Well, the villagers carry Danny to their next feast. She walks up to the throne of flowers at the head of the table, and only after she sits does everyone else sit. She, of course, is still tripping on them shrooms as she can still see the plants, flowers, and food around her move fluidly. As with the other feasts, since she is the guest of honor, the others don't start eating until after Danny does. She's then brought a herring and is told she has to eat it whole. When she tells them she can't, she's told she has to try anyway. She tries to eat it, but just ends up spitting it out. Everyone seems really disappointed at first, but then just laughs and tells her good try. Meanwhile, Christian is starting to feel the effects of the tea he was given. He asks the villager next to him what's going on, but the dude just claps in his face and trips him out more. Sorry, I was picturing that scene. I like when he starts crying. (laughs) Why would you do that? Why would you do that? (laughs) A toast is made in Danny's honor, and a very excited village girl tells Danny that she is now one of the family. Then Christian and Maya play a ridiculously long round of a staring contest, which does not go unnoticed by Danny. We see Pele is drawing another picture of Danny, this time in her May Queen attire. And then Siv gets up and tells Danny that it's now time for the May Queen to go around and bless the crops. Danny asks if Christian can come with her, to which Siv says, Nay, the Queen must ride alone. Suspicious. Well, next she rides in a people-pulled carriage and is whisked away to plant meat and eggs with the ladies and sing songs. Typical weekend with your girls. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, I've had a full week. I just need me a meat and eggs weekend with my girls. (laughs) This weekend, (laughs) I've had the hard week (laughs) and y'all are pulling me because I deserve it next weekend. I will help to pull y'all, but this weekend it's mine. And they never agree, but it's really nice when I ask. Love a meat plant. Oh, it's good times. Well, meanwhile, a very nervous Christian is taken away, dressed in villagers' robes, blessed by some male elders, and given uh, some sort of Viagra smoke. Uh, He's then led into the same room where they keep all those sacred books. Maya is naked and lying on a bed of flowers waiting for him. Uh, But she also happens to be surrounded by at least 20 other older naked women. One of them comes over and undresses Christian, which makes for two male peepees in this movie. Yep. Lucky us. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Every time we turn around, it's another male peepee. Just unexpected. midsummer, like male peepee. Right? 
just a bunch of face smashing and dicks. That movie. It's an average Saturday night, am I right? (laughs) Just right after my meat and eggs plant. Living it up. Well, next, I'm not sure I can truly convey the awkwardness of this scene. So Christian begins to have intercourse with Maya, uh, with all these other naked women standing around singing. (laughs) It's so bad. It's so awkward. Maya reaches out to one of the women who takes her hand. Isn't it like her mom? Well, I have no idea. I don't know who's related to who. Uh, but she bends down close to them and starts singing right in Christian's face. And he's I'd all lo- like, uh, what's happening, dude? I loved that while we were watching this the first time, you audibly awkward laughed out loud. <laughs> I could tell how uncomfortable you were by the scene. Oh, it was horrible. Just horrible. <laughs> uh, well, as Maya moans in pleasure, the women also moan. And begin to fondle themselves. But it's also like not just a moan. It's like this weird acapella music uh, situation. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> now, did I not just make everyone feel awkward? I'm I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable that I did it. So, I mean, but that's how it felt watching this. It's like, stop it. Stop it. And they're all in unison and it's just, it's weird. Oh, this is definitely a group activity that shouldn't be. Uh, we can even see poor little bee stung Reuben is in the corner on his bed, just taking it all in. It's like, this is inappropriate. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, now returning to the main area of the village, Danny is told to go to Siv's house to receive a blessing. But in the distance, the moans from Reuben's temple can be heard, and Danny wants to know what's going on. But villager Hannah tells her, that's not for us. But the more Hannah tries to dissuade her, the more Danny wants to know what the hell is going on in that temple. In fact, by the look on her face, we're pretty sure she already knows exactly what's going on before she even gets there. Uh, But at the temple door, Danny peeks through the world's largest keyhole. Yeah. Why is this keyhole so... Who is carrying around keys this big? (laughs) Nobody. Uh, Anyway, she looks through the giant keyhole to see Christian and Maya, along with 20 other women, uh, doing the dirty. Doing the (laughs) dee-dee. Testing his dipstick. (laughs) Well, Danny proceeds to run out of the temple and immediately vomits all the women from her carriage procession. I suppose this would be her court. Uh, come rushing to her side, immediately engulf her, and take her back to the sleeping barn. Danny is placed on her bed, but is continually surrounded by the young woman, like they won't leave her side. So much so that when she begins hyperventilating and moves to the floor to try and breathe, all the women come with her and will not leave her side. They begin to breathe with her, finally slowing her breathing down in the process, until they are all breathing and crying in unison as Danny finally breaks down into a cathartic cry that has been long overdue and each of the women experiences it with her as they are now spiritually and mentally linked. So here's that other scene where we have Florence Pugh just, I don't know where she brings it out from, but I I mean just every pain she has ever felt since the moment of birth comes out in this scene it's Mm -hmm. incredible it's so good 
Well, back in the temple, I suppose the ladies are starting to get a little impatient with Christian's performance. So one of the other women comes over to help him out a bit and uses her hands on his buttocks to help him thrust deeper into Maya. Yeah, she she's literally just like shoving his butt, like mm-hmm. just pushing him. Mm-hmm. We're getting it. We're going to do it. This is taking too long, man. <laughs> Well, after Christian's climax, Maya immediately announces that she can feel the baby already growing inside of her. Christian then turns around and sees the old woman who had been helping him out, and the full realization of what has just happened really starts to set in, and it is time for Christian to freak the fuck out. (laughs) Uh, He is so freaked out, he runs out of the temple without bothering to grab his robe, so Keep in mind, all this next bit is completely au natural. In fact, fun fact here, after the sex scene, Christian was supposed to run away in the robe that he had entered in. It was actor Jack Rayner himself that suggested Christian run out completely nude to appear more vulnerable. Rayner was inspired by having recently watched the 1972 version of The Last House on the Left, and like many films in the horror genre, female characters are disrobed, humiliated, and or assaulted before their demise. He felt it was due time that male characters be made to suffer similar indignity. Wow. That's really interesting. Slow clap. For sure. I'm, I'm putting it in there. Slow clap. Well done. Yeah. At least Jack himself is not a douchebag. Yeah, and I really do think it adds that extra element because he he does have such a visual kind of eye-opening experience. Like he, you know, obviously does, does the thing mm-hmm. and turns around and realizes, oh, I literally just had, you know, basically blinders pulled over my eyes and I'm now awake. And yeah, I think realistically in that moment, I don't know how many people coming out of that would like start grabbing their clothes and everything like that i mean you're gonna freak out and you're just gonna run out yeah and yeah it's like in hindsight and even as the viewer like you kind of find yourself being like "Eh, i don't know but in that situation you've just been drugged you've just basically had sex with this girl in front of i don't know like 10 or so strangers while they all uh felt it too you know (laughs) i don't know what's going on with their their things but yeah i definitely think it adds that that extra element of realism to Mm -hmm. uh, an otherwise pretty surreal surreal situation. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, Well, as he exits, he takes off in one direction, but runs into some guys carrying Danny's flower throne. He approaches the sleeping barn, but hearing the crying, he changes that course. So he runs toward another building that has a truck parked in front of it, But when he looks at the garden in front, he sees Josh's leg and foot with a rune painted on the bottom sticking out of the ground. Uh, We're certain it's Josh because he was literally the only black person. Uh, So we know definitively. Yeah. (laughs) Yep, that's his leg. Pretty easy to narrow that down. Uh, Christian, now really freaking out, runs off to hide in the chicken coop. But, oh dear, this is no sanctuary as most chicken coops are uh hey have you been wondering what happened to simon yeah that guy from london but wait didn't he catch a train that's what we were told (laughs) nope 
That could never happen or he might have told everyone what's really going on in the Swedish version of Jonstown. Uh, so suspended from the ceiling of the chicken coop, positioned face down, arms in front like he's flying, is the naked body of Simon. He has been subjected to an actual Viking method of torture and execution called the Blood Eagle, where the ribs are severed from the spine with a sharp tool and the lungs are pulled through the opening to create a pair of wings out the back, uh, we can actually see that Simon is still breathing. We can see his wing lung things <laughs> inflating and deflating. Uh, also, it's midsummer, so they've gone ahead and sewn flowers over his eyes as well. It's so nice. It's very festive. Uh, but alas, the jig is up for poor Christian as Father Odd arrives just in time to blow some sort of powder into his face, rendering him unconscious. Next, we are seeing through Christian's point of view as he's coming to, and he's being told by another villager that he can't speak or move. He's seated in a wheelchair with his back to a stage where we see Danny, now fully engulfed in flowers, seated on her throne. She is physically on the stage, but mentally she is waiting in line at the DMV. I mean, I don't know where she is, but she is checked out. Yeah, she's not here anymore. <laughs> we see the elders of the village stand with Danny on the stage while everyone else is out in the audience. Even the oracle Reuben is here, finger-painting the events into the ruby radar on his desk made to look like a cloud? I I don't know. It was just... You know that song, Reuben <laughs> in the Sky? <laughs> With ruby radar. Well, Siv announces that today is the day they will make nine human sacrifices. Four villagers, four visitors and one to be chosen by the queen. So Sten then announces the four villagers presented for sacrifice. Two are the elderly couple who jumped off the cliff earlier, and the other two are volunteers, Ingmar and Ulf. Pele is then thanked for bringing in new blood and honored for bringing the May Queen. For the final sacrifice, in true Hunger Games style, a lottery is applied to choose a random village tribute. But then Sten tells Danny she must choose between sacrificing the random village tribute or Christian. Oh shit. Tough decision. <laughs> well, Christian and Danny's eyes meet, and it seems he's trying to plead with her through his eyes. Remember, he can't move or speak. She looks back at him and seems emotionally overwhelmed by the choice in front of her. Will she continue to bail out the douchebag that has held her emotionally hostage for the past four years? Or will she finally be able to sacrifice him and let him go? Next, we see a woman's corpse being wheeled across the grounds toward that yellow pyramid-shaped temple Pele told them was off-limits. So... I'll be honest, when we first watched this, Danny and I had no idea who the hell this was. Yeah. Uh, eventually, by process of elimination, we assumed it was Connie, since Simon and all our other travelers were dead. She must be dead, too. And through my research, I was able to confirm that this is indeed Connie. In this case, she was victim 
to editing, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, the first cut of this movie had an extra 30 minutes. And one of the things we learned was in that 30 minutes is what the fuck happened to Connie? So apparently she was drowned at some point. Remember when our main characters all heard a woman scream, but then we never came back to that? That was Connie's death. And now we're seeing them bring her corpse in, along with the others, to be placed in that yellow temple. But we can also see that these bodies have all had their bodies stuffed and or replaced with straw. Remember all that fucking hay everyone's been collecting? Yeah, here's where it's all been going. Scarecrows. <laughs> well, the next quote-unquote body we see being wheeled in is dear sweet fuck nugget Mark, whose skin face has been placed on a body of straw, complete with an actual jester hat. Skin the fool indeed. Inside the temple are more stacks of hay and several runes painted inside. Most of them seem to mean sacrifice or ritual gift. The two elder suicide corpses have been brought in. Josh's corpse is also seen covered in dirt, his mouth stuffed with paper from the ruby radar, with a stack of books in his lap. Even Simon's body has been brought in from the chicken coop and placed next to Josh. Back outside, Ulf and Ingmar are saying goodbye to other villagers, while inside another building, that damn bear we saw in a cage earlier has been killed, and an elder is teaching a group of young boys how to gut it without rupturing the organs. After the beast has been emptied, we see Danny's choice, as Christian is indeed fitted inside the carcass, almost like a bear suit, which is then sewn up around Christian, with a hole where the mouth used to be remaining for his face. Christian is then seated on a large haystack in the middle of the temple. Ulf and Ingmar are now inside. Another villager gives Ulf a tincture from the yew tree and tells him to, quote-unquote, feel no pain. He then does the same for Ingmar, but tells him to feel no fear. The temple is then set on fire from the inside and left to burn as the villagers chant outside. We see the bodies begin to burn and hear Christian's muffled screams as the bear carcass burns around him. We watch Ulf burn alive and scream in pain as the villagers outside join him in his cries. If you haven't figured it out yet, this cult experiences everything together. If one feels it, they all feel it. In this family, you are never alone. We now see Danny up from her chair, gagging and choking from the smoke, crying and wailing, because she too is now a part of this family and feels and shares their suffering and their joys. And as she's looking around at what is happening and she sees her new family, Sharing together in this cathartic moment as the temple continues to burn, she smiles in the acceptance that she is finally home. Bum, bum, bum. And that's how it ends. That's Midsummer, my dudes. That is Midsummer. Uh, now, of course, that could also be interpreted as she smiles as she slowly goes mad. And she's just gone crazy. I, it's kind of uh, left to your inter interpretation, I think. But 
I'm okay with either. I I personally think this is kind of one of those predestined things. She was always meant to be here. She was always searching for that one place to really feel uh, held by her family. You know, she always had to hide these emotions for everyone else. She had to be the strong one because, you know, she had this poor sister suffering with this mental illness. And so that took up all of her family's time and attention. And so she was never allowed to feel what she wanted to feel because everything, you know, was all in in uh, taking care of and making sure that the sister was okay. And then, of course, even when she is away from that and, and is supposed to be with someone who cares and loves for her, you know, here's Christian who just always is making her stifle these emotions so she can never truly feel and be who she is. And that's kind of always what she's been seeking. And and finally, here in this crazy little commune, uh, she finally feels that acceptance in this place where not only is she encouraged to have her feelings, but they all will share these feelings with her. Whatever she's feeling, they will go through it together. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's ultimately what she, uh, that's, that's all she's ever wanted. Yeah, yeah. You could tell that from the beginning she was always searching for not only physical companionship but emotional companionship sure. and that was never going to be found in christian absolutely not and and you know unfortunately i don't think it was something her parents could offer for her either because of this you know this unfortunate situation in, in her home life mm-hmm. i think all that attention had to go uh to to helping a sister who desperately needed it yeah yeah definitely this movie's just <sighs> It's a wild one, but it's definitely one that I um, am so thankful that we finally watched, A, and B, I'm I'm so glad that movies like this exist for the simple fact of it's, it's breaking those um, bonds of what horror is known for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, horror is always often defined as the typical slasher and, and things of the like. Uh, but it, just like we've been talking about this whole time with A24 movies, it's, it's kind of this whole new era when it comes to horror movies, kind of making these new horror movies that find a way to bend the genre in a way that hasn't been done before, but in a way that I think is sometimes even scarier because, like I said, the the these movies find a way to sit with you longer Mm -hmm. it feels like and so and whether that's you know genuinely sitting with you to you know making you feel creeped out or just making you think like I said immediately after we watched this we were like oh can't wait to watch it again and I feel like if a movie much less a horror movie can make you do that it's it's doing a damn good job yeah and that's a lot of times the thing that's going to excite me about a movie, I, I was immediately so excited at the end of this movie because I knew it meant <laughs> I had to go do a lot of research. There, yeah. there was information in here that, that I needed to suss out, you know, like looking up all about these runes and, and finding out, you know, about these histories and, and customs and how they've been adapted for this movie and stuff. It, it was a fascinating bout of research one that lasted multiple days yeah <laughs> uh, my brain is a little fried <laughs> it was a lot all at once but but I I live for that kind of crap and <laughs> so I I was immediately excited just because that anytime a movie can uh, 
my enjoyment of it can be extended uh, due to the fact that now I get to go and look all this stuff up, that just adds to my enjoyment of the film. So I, I was, I was giddy. I was giddy. I, I had a great time. I love this film, start to finished. Yeah, I'll be honest. Not that I thought that you would dislike the movie, but I know that sometimes you're very specific about your horror and what you like and what you don't like. And like we said off the top, I genuinely had no idea what was happening with this movie. So I didn't have a whole lot like going into it thinking that you wouldn't like it because X, Y, and Z. I just didn't know how it would jive with you, especially Mm. the kind of the more we got into this A24 series, um, seeing what you clicked with and what you didn't. I was really curious to see how this movie would fare with you. And I'm, I'm just so glad that it ended up being a good watch for both of us just because it was so anticipated it's been so anticipated for us for so long uh, I'm glad that it was so good yeah I I am too uh, another one of those uh, this one I can't the witch you know we were just so pleasantly surprised just mm-hmm. because you know we said time and again we just were not into period pieces so when we really liked that one that was just so surprising this one I'm not surprised that I liked it. It was just, it's different. Yeah. It's, it's different. I, I loved everything about it. I love it. You put secret symbol crap that I got to suss out. And it's like a mystery. And you give me clues. You love it. I'll go Scooby-Doo on your ass. You love a good clue. I do. Well, before we get to our prompts, uh, there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I told you I was going to tell you who... Uh, Aster said actually killed Josh. Yes. He claims that's Pele himself. <gasps> yeah. Nuh-uh. Can you believe it? No, I won't. That's, <laughs> I guess you don't have to, but that's who he said. No, no, <gasps> no. Yes. What the, what? <laughs> it happened. But I, wait. Well, you know, I mean, Pele kept warning him. Because Josh kept asking him, can I get in there? Can I see pictures? No, dude. But he kept pushing him. And I think he finally broke in there. He's like, dude, you have crossed the line. You got to go. So. I mean, I think the intention, they were all supposed to die. Yeah. You know, I think that was. So Paleo was like in on it the whole time. Oh, I definitely think he was in on it the whole time. Now, I had started to develop a theory that he was in on it the whole time, so much so that he actually might have had something to do with uh, Danny's family's death. That he actually set that up. Uh, but and and that's because remember we see that crown of flowers on the frame of Danny when she's a little girl next to the parents' bed. Mm-hmm. So I that that was kind of a like a, a calling card kind of thing. I don't know, but. That's another thing that Aster has come out and said, no, he can definitively say that that was not yeah. set up by Pele or the the cult. Basically, what he was saying is, is kind of like some things are just destined to be. And that was just kind of foreshadowing that is that this was she was supposed to end up here the whole time. Kind I of think thing. I thought in my head or I guess I was like blindly hoping that like Pele was just an innocent bystander in all this yeah or at least just like being being fooled himself in the aspect of just kind of being blinded by his love for his family yeah well 
he is in a sense, but he knew exactly what he was doing by bringing these people back. Yeah. And uh, and I think it just all became, uh, you know, kind of uh, a happy accident that it, it worked out in his favor and she became the May Queen. And, and you know, who's to say if it, maybe she showed up, if she doesn't become become the May Queen, maybe Pele himself is is showing up in that uh, in the temple burning there at the end. Yeah. Uh, so who knows? Well, I am just flabbergasted. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, another thing I wanted to read, a, a kind of a little blurb, uh, that came, I think it was just on IMDb, the kind of the facts, but I, I thought it was kind of well said. It just said throughout the film, Danny hallucinates the plant life interacting with her and growing into her. This foreshadows her eventual decision to join the community at the end of the film. Additionally, her interaction slash growth with plants gets more pronounced as the film progresses. Notable examples include the tuft of grass growing through her hand, the grass consuming her feet, the vines on her throne reacting to the movement of her arms, the flowers in her crown breathing in sync with her, and in the final scene, the dress and crown made entirely of flowers signaling her complete engulfment by the community. I just thought that was a neat kind of way to show that character's arc just mm -hmm. through the nature of the film. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think I took that part pretty face value mm -hmm. um, and just thought of it all, all along the lines of every time she was tripping, she just kind of, nature was where she saw these imager, images at. And because this movie is so um, hallucinogenic oriented, mm -hmm. us as the viewers go along that journey with them. And so I thought it was just kind of like we were just supposed to kind of be genuinely confused about all that as well going along with Danny. But that makes sense, especially when you said uh, the dress was meant to show her being fully engulfed. I mm -hmm. think that's a perfect explanation because, yeah, she does. She looks like this little tiny thing in this big dress but yeah that that makes apple absolute sense that now she's just this final piece in this community mm -hmm. yeah and that she she finally belongs yeah and and it's odd you you kind of think back to that uh the statement that christian made to, to her even though it was an asshole thing to to say at the time he tells her you know i, I think it's time that we just try and assimilate you know, and then by the end, that's exactly what we see she's done mm -hmm. is is she's become one of them. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, we could sit here and talk about this for a week. <laughs> There's so much stuff. I, I'm telling you, you know, if you've only seen it once, you have to go back and watch this again. I guarantee you there's so many so much stuff that you missed. Go back now that you know the full story. Pay attention to like those paintings on the walls. There's so much stuff foreshadowing like the certain way people are going to die and so on and so forth. It's really interesting to see all those clues. You know, we can also talk about that painting now at the very beginning. Uh, before we saw anything, it starts off with this painting. I said it was broken up kind of in five acts, kind of broken up by the seasons so in the first section of the painting, you can actually see the death of Danny's family. And they are all connected by this long hose and death is holding one end of it. And then in the next scene, you see 
Danny going through her grief and Christian kind of comforting her, but off in the trees you see Pele drawing his picture of her and he's actually kind of pulling the strings here. He's he's really the one who uh, who wants to be the one comforting her. Uh, and then in the next section, we see our travelers. They are all being led by Pele. He actually has a flute, almost like he's the Pied Piper. And uh, we see Mark and Josh and Christian and Danny. Mark even has his little uh, jester's cap on in, in the painting here. Uh, in the, the next portion of the painting, we see them arrive. You see the archway that looks like the sun, and they arrive. We even see the bear down in there. We see our older couple having their estupa jumping off the cliff. <laughs> and then in the final scene, we see all the women dancing around the maypole. And uh, yeah, the whole movie, it's all laid out right there. If, uh, That's if, all you got to do. Just look at that and the movie's over. And just turn it off. You're done. You <laughs> save yourself about two and a half hours. Hey, the funny thing is it never felt like two and a half hours. No. No, not, not at all. once did I look at the clock going, ugh, how much more time do we have? No. I think even at one point, I remember looking at the clock and thinking, oh, wait, there's not enough time. Like, I know there was like, I don't know. I, I think at one point I, I looked and there was like 20 minutes left. And it's it, we're getting really into the thick of things at that point. And I remember thinking like, no, 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 nope. There's still a lot of questions I need answers <laughs> for. So this you can't be correct. You have not given yourself enough time to explain this to me. <laughs> I'm going to need to actually send this back to the writer and explain <laughs> that this was done incorrectly. <laughs> All right. Well. We got to do some prompts. You ready to do that? I'm ready. You know, when I first sat down to do my prompts, I was like, is every, every answer is just going to be a stupa? It, it could fit in for everything. Literally Popcorn everything. Spiller, a stupa. <laughs> Gorgasm, a stupa. Memorable yeah. mortality, a stupa. That's what I put. All three of those I've just told you. A stupa, a stupa, a stupa. I'll be honest. Yeah, I have my popcorn spiller, uh, gorgasm, memorable mortality, all, all, all as all of them. Mm-hmm. My scene stealers were where I was to, able to kind of play around with. And I and I had two kind of options here. I chose Danny for the reasons that I've just gone on and on and on about mm-hmm. um, her amazing acting skills. But then I also had to throw Mark in here oh for the my simple God. reason of I did the, the same comedy. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> we had the exact same answer on every single yeah, one. It's, it, I mean, it's just perfect. It's that balance of... These really intense, intense, high tension moments. And I really think Mark was just this perfect character that offered us that comedic relief. And mm-hmm. then, like I said, with, with Florence Pugh, I just, it was, I guess this was just my first time watching her. I know she's been in other things, uh, but I was just, I was just blown away by, by her in this movie and the intensity and rawness that she was able to put in into the emotional parts of the role of Danny that I was just like oh that it has to go to her yeah so yeah it was basically the whole movies the uh the scene and then Danny and Mark <laughs> yeah so <laughs> yeah I you know popcorn spiller I put a stupa because you're just oh my god <laughs> you're screaming that's the moment I was like I ha- I am so sad I was not in a theater so I could just hear everyone screaming. Yeah. I listened to a, a podcast before we recorded because we 
obviously you, you like to do your research and everything and I like to listen just to get other people's opinions and everything about the movie but this one specifically uh they were talking to Ari Aster himself um and they were talking about how he was like this is one of those movies you have to see in the theater you have to see it in theater and at this time the podcast was fresh I mean it was right when the movie had come out mm -hmm. and here I am in in 2021 and I was like I can't watch it in a theater <laughs> I don't like you rubbing it in my face because I already know <laughs> that ship has sailed <laughs> but yeah I we, me and you both I think we looked at each other and we were just like oh my gosh to have given the opportunity to see this on the big oh. screen yeah, I would just, but see, and now you can never, never go back. Well, yeah, it's definitely that first time experience. Yes, it has to be that first time because mm -hmm. now you know what's coming. But when people didn't know what was coming, oh my God, it's fig figuring it out mm -hmm. and then begging the screen not to show it to you. <laughs> yeah. I want to uh, be in a theater with, with others that haven't seen it. Oh God, it'd just be great. That would be <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, then, of course, my scene stealer, uh, like I said, like you, I had Danny. My reasons for putting Danny on there is just because, you know, it's her movie. This is her journey. So mm -hmm. I, I was constantly looking to her to see how she was reacting, how yeah. she is affected by what's going on. Uh, so, yeah, she was definitely my scene stealer. And then exactly what you said about Mark. He was just the perfect levity when mm -hmm. when we needed it most yeah uh yeah then my gorgasm i mean it's it's definitely a stupa <laughs> and then memorable mortality i actually wrote uh all of them i did too <laughs> oh my god i'm not shitting you it says all of them how do i choose <laughs> yeah i put all of them except poor connie we never get to see that bitch die yeah but then i put really a stupa <laughs> Well, I guess that just leaves the big question. Do we put it in the vault or leave it behind in the dead zone? I mean, this one's pretty clear. We're going to leave it behind. We hated it. We did <laughs> it not have a good awful. time. <laughs> Stupid. Never want to see it again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. Th th for me, 100% going in the vault. Yeah. Yeah. Same. It was unexpected. Like we just keep harping on, but it's going in the vault. It's already gotten two watches out of me. It's probably going to get at least three or four. Uh, I'm already itching to watch it again. I know there's still stuff I'm missing. Oh, yeah. 100%. I feel like I don't know how many times I could watch this, and I feel like I would still see something new every time. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I'm convinced that Ari just keeps adding stuff in there secretly. We don't know, but he just keeps adding for us to keep watching. And uh, we will. We will keep watching. We just got to say thank you, Ari. We appreciate it. Guys, it was a good one. I, I love this one. Yeah, I really, again, have to say thank you to all of our listeners that kind of kept pushing this on our list because it was always on our list. This was always going to be something that we talked about on this podcast. And the fact that everybody kind of kept saying, oh, I can't wait to hear you guys talk about this. It kept it on my radar. And I think because of that, it really pushed this A24 series sooner rather than later. And I... I I think I can speak for both of us and we're just so thankful that we got to see these movies because I don't know that we would have seen all of these in this a this order or as soon as we did and it just it's been so fun yeah I I'm having a blast yeah let's keep doing it <laughs> Well, that's 
going to do it for us. Episode 26 is... In the Can. In the Can. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Dead Zone Drive-In on your favorite listening platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful if you would leave a rating and or review. And if you screenshot that review and send it to us, we're going to send you your very own Dead Zone Drive-In sticker for free. There's no money's honey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com. And if you're wanting to reach us by snail mail, our address is P.O. Box 12665, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma 73157. Next, be sure to cruise down to our show notes where you'll find a link to all of our socials and our Facebook group, the Dead Zone Drive-In Discussion Room. And lastly, be sure to seek us out next week as we'll be kicking off our birthday month with one of Whitney's picks, Big Trouble in Little China. If you want to check out that trailer, don't worry, we've got you. That link is also down in the show notes. I'm so excited for my John Carpenter fluff. (laughs) I'm very excited as well. We've got a fun month ahead of us. We're just going to keep the fun going. And of course, a big thank you to our house band Slime and the Maggot Boob for bringing us a couple of chickadoodle doos from one of our favorite restaurants, the Charcoal Oven. Food in the dead zone can taste a little weird if it's not prepared correctly and at the right times. So it's nice to have a taste of home every once in a while. I do love me a chickadoo. And remember, if you're looking for the dead zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety, you'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please buckle up. We'll be waiting for you. Uh, but I really think that this was just to establish that Pele is a, a talented arse- arsonist. Was I going to say arsonist? I mean, well, I'm not wrong. <laughs> yes, let's say fire play does come into play. <laughs> Pele loves fire. <laughs> Pele fire good. My fire. <laughs> I drew it in my book. <laughs> fire pretty in my book. Look, look at the pretty book fire. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.